Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, so it's Scott Groves here with the On The Edge Podcast, and I'm here today with uh, my new friend, actually, uh, Robbie Huglin. And this is a funny story. Robbie and I had met for the first time about uh, 10 minutes ago, and we've become friends on Facebook really just from commenting, debating, supporting kind of a libertarian viewpoint on uh, on random uh, on random stuff. So I didn't even know what Robbie did before I invited him over. I'm just, oh, this is a pretty smart motherfucker who writes some really interesting stuff on Facebook. And then I come to find out ex-military in the Air Force assigned to a special operations unit, obviously a libertarian, a little bit of a political orphan like me because of what's going on politically, and then does marketing for a law firm. So let's let's dive into it all. First of all, hey man, cheers. Thanks for being here. Cheers. And what, what do you guys to tell us about this whiskey you brought because usually i bring the whiskey for the guests but this is phenomenal uh whenever there's whiskey involved i have to bring some because i have some friends who made the first legal distillery in orange county uh blinking owl over in santa Ana, and nice. this one we're drinking right now is a barrel aged gin uh and the one we'll be drinking in a little bit is a young whiskey it's a three-year-old bourbon uh and one thing i love about them is most of these most of these newer distilleries, they get a lot of their product from uh, a big distillery in Indiana, and they kind of mix it with some of the new stuff that they're making. But right from the, the get-go, they started doing this. So they released their first one, I think, at two years and now have a three-year bourbon. But as you'll see when we open that up, it, it drinks like a eight-year-old bourbon, somewhere in that range. I'm going to have to put them all over the uh, podcast so they can pay me a dollar and I can have my first official sponsor and then I'll just buy a couple <laughs> cases of this. Because this, this like, I mean, I've never had a gin this dark and uh, you said it's like a barrel-aged gin, so it tastes a little bit more like whiskey, but it's just, it's really good. Yeah, so it, it really bridges that that gap and what I really like when I'm trying to get people into gin who just don't like, because there's so much cheap gin out there that people too flowery it's a little it, it tastes like yeah they, some type of weird cheap wine sometimes yeah and it and it is a lot because they just throw in a bunch of stuff to to cover up how bad it is and so it's one of those ones that you can get cheap and so people have those bad experiences i mean tequila is the same way you get a lot exactly. of people who just say i'll never drink tequila because i you know i drank it in high school and had had some bad Cabo or Tijuana experiences yeah. and swore it was the tequila. No, it was the it was the ethanol masquerading <laughs> as uh, as tequila. Uh, it's funny because my wife is Mexican, as as uh, some of the listeners might know. And one of the first times that I met her whole extended family at this wedding, you know, everybody was just sipping tequila, and I was like, "What the fuck? Like these must be just raving alcoholics." And then I realized, oh no, there's really good tequila that you can sip and there's all different kinds and flavors and creaminess and finishes. And I was like, so then all night I was just like drinking shots of tequila, but not like I did in high school in the army, uh, in TJ, which then you feel like death the next day. And I woke up and I'm like, Oh, I'm surprisingly good for drinking like 12 or 15 tequila shots. Um, but it's cause yeah, there's, there's good alcohol out there. Uh, so how, how'd you get into, how'd you get into booze? Oh, I probably the military is the, I, I so I drink a little bit before the military, but that's where I, really got into it got into the drinking part of it um i wasn't drinking a lot of great stuff then i mean there was one time i remember we brought back some liquor to the barracks and realized they had left you know on the really cheap stuff the plastic containers they'll have that big piece of security black plastic on top that they remove when you check out well they yeah. forgot to remove it so we had to take out a multi-tool and the saw and we sawed off the top of the <laughs> 
plastic bottle. But that's the kind of stuff we were working with. We'd do tequila Sundays to get the week started off right. And, you know, we'd all end up throwing up by 2 a.m. And then, you know, pee, physical training at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. So, yeah, I remember a couple times at Fort Riley, Kansas, the winters were brutal and it's like it was just miserable. But in the summer, it would get fairly hot. Not humid, but it was it was warm, and there was a couple mornings where you know you get thirty guys out there doing PT that had all drank excessively the night before, and it just it smelled disgusting. I mean, people falling out of the run to throw up to run back in, and then another guy would throw up because of the smell of the throw up. It was just like I remember. I think I drank more Picardi one fifty one because that was like the most effective way to get drunk when you're making fifteen hundred dollars a month, um, and yeah. Bacardi 151 and Diet Coke, I can probably never drink again in my life because it was every night in the barracks, somebody was drinking something. It, it was just disgusting. Um, I think I drank more in the three years I was in the Army than I have since I got out. And that's, uh, I, I actually love, uh, I love the military for how they handle some of that stuff. There's a lot I, I don't like about the military. Um, but I do love that personal responsibility aspect. And there are, rules against you know showing up still drunk from the night before but instead of sending you to do paperwork most of the time they're just going to make you regret it by working you really really hard yeah and it's just such a better i i i think that's such a better way to run things yeah it's kind of hard to complain about the day-to-day struggles of civilian life if you've had to run five miles hung over blasted out of your mind um I remember the the loop around Fort Riley was like three and a half, three point six miles, something like that, and it was like a really wild bender for all of us. And we completed a lap, and we're like, finally, we're gonna finish. And just our platoon sergeant knew that we were messing around, and we were all drunk, so we had to run it again. And I was like, oh, great, seven miles, and uh, it was just it was just disgusting. So tell us about your your experience in the military, because it sounds like you kind of shouldn't have got in, and then you got to do some pretty wild stuff. So yeah, so I I dropped out of high school. Um, and when I was 17, I told my parents, I was like, Hey, I found this, this college in Utah that doesn't require you to go to high school or to have graduated from high school. So, uh, I'm just going to go there next year. Would have been my senior year and, uh, ended up not liking that. All the, all the things I disliked about high school were the same as community college. Uh, so I, I looked for other things for a while. Um, I ended up getting heavily into politics probably this would have been about 2004 2005 and worked for uh the hugh hewitt show is a you know fairly big conservative political radio show and uh within that just kind of really got interested in the military and at the time was very much on board with uh the war in iraq with uh the war in afghanistan and uh, at the time that the war in Iraq really seemed to be losing popular support, I just kind of felt like I should, you know, put my money where my mouth was. Uh, and so went to a recruiter and the recruiter had to, you know, get certain waivers since I didn't graduate from, from high school. But, uh, yeah, went in through the Air Force and went in with a guaranteed job as a linguist. I had a friend who had done that for the Marines. And I, I love that you're a high school dropout and you're like, we're going to put you in the most academically <laughs> challenging <laughs> career in the Air Force, which is learning 
whatever language you learned. Yeah, it um, ended up being Arabic. Oh, so do you speak Arabic? Uh, no. no. I <laughs> no, no. Okay. I could speak it good enough for government work. Um, so I went through the Defense Language Institute in 2007. Is that up in Monterey? Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a, a friend that used to teach there. Fascinating. Like, they teach you a language in like two months or something, right? Six months or it's, something? So it depends on the language. Uh, Arabic, I want to say, was a close to a 70-week course. Um, so, you know, a year and a third or so. And, uh, what, yeah, what they, what they do there is just crazy. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, but you know, you do leave, especially in a language like Arabic, Arabic is, it's crazy because we think of it as one thing and it is like, it's more of an umbrella. So as you would think of like romance languages, because the Arabic they speak in Iraq is as different from the Arabic in Morocco as, as like Spanish and Italian would be. So what we're learning uh, at the time, what we were learning there was more of like the base level language. So we learned Latin, the, the Latin equivalent of Arabic. So then we could learn the languages that branched off of it. Um, and so I ended up with Arabic that was, you know, good enough for government work and good enough to, uh, to basically do like radio type communications. Wow. So very standardized. It's a lot easier. But I remember there were a lot of funny moments. One was when I realized that, you know, we were having a conversation about um, the economy and then we started talking about military movements and I was talking about, you know, the Egyptian mechanized infantry uh, moving across some desert, doing all of this in Arabic conversation. And I realized that I couldn't say, can you give me my cup of coffee that was on like the other side of the table? I couldn't reach it. And we were only allowed to speak Arabic at the time. And here we're having, I mean, basically arguments about economics, but I, the very, very basic stuff you just, you don't learn. And so I couldn't, I couldn't tell the person in Arabic, like, <laughs> hey. Well, yeah. I ended up saying, like, hey, I need my coffee, but I couldn't, in a more normal way, say, hey, could you please give me my coffee? Right. That's, like, the opposite of what I used to call surfer Spanish, where guys would go down and surf in Mexico, and it's, like, you kind of learn the basics, like, how to yeah. find the restroom, the hospital, a taco, Masa a beer. Yeah. Exactly, That's exactly. <laughs> and it's, like, it's like that weird low-level conversational, but what you're talking about is, in Arabic, you could describe mechanized tank unit crossing the desert, but you couldn't say, hey, where can I find a beer? Right. Or if I was stuck in line behind people who were speaking Arabic, uh, depending on where they were from, I likely could barely understand what they were saying, but at the same time I could get on, you know, the most political Al Jazeera show, flip that on and understand every word. Oh, it's fascinating. Do you, do you ever think about going back to that since it was interesting enough to, uh, to, to have you join the military? Have you ever thought to go back and study languages? Well, so I, uh, Arabic was my fourth language. Um, so I grew up Mormon and ended up doing a Mormon mission in Brazil Portuguese is probably my strongest language after English and uh, sprained my ankle while in Brazil, uh, walked on it for like nine months, ended up needing to get surgery. And so when they decided to send me back onto my mission, I did, uh, they sent me to the Midwest speaking Spanish. They just wanted me to be closer to doctors in case something happened to my Went ankle. horribly wrong. Yeah. And they, and they basically said, oh, you know, Spanish is close enough. To Portuguese, so, so well. You know what's interesting is you are um, 
uh, I think one of my more libertarian friends, um, just based on the conversations that we've had on, uh, on Facebook or maybe more libertarian leanings. My other two friends that are very libertarian are also both ex-Mormons. So do you think there's something in the kind of personal responsibility realm of the Mormon faith that kind of lends itself to that, to that more libertarian mindset? Uh, it could be that. It could also be, it could also be kind of a rejection. I don't know if they're still Mormon. One, um, one is, one is not. Okay. I think, I think for me, it ended up being um, more of more due to seeing up close that command control doesn't work that well. I mean, even in the military, it works okay, but you need to put a whole lot of controls on every single person. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, maybe, maybe if we had the equivalent where if you don't show up for work, you go to jail. Um, maybe we could have a command control type economy that worked for everyone. But uh, I'm, I'm just not into that. I think, I think the military only works as a volunteer, uh, as a volunteer organization where you're, you know what you're signing up for. But I think as soon as you start imposing that kind of stuff on people, um, it, it breaks down really quickly. And, you know, the military only works okay, even with all that command control. So I think, you know, the Mormon church is very hierarchical uh, as well. It's much, much closer to the Catholic church than it is to, you know, evangelicalism. And I wonder too, if it's, because I, I know a lot of Mormons who have gone the libertarian route, and I, I wonder if it is, probably has something to do with believing in personal responsibility. You do learn a lot of that, but I think it also has to do with a, a rejection of authoritarianism and, and being told what to do. Yeah, I was, uh, I was arguing with a friend of mine, and you'll know where I'm going on this. She did not. She's uh, very, very progressive, and I'm like, yeah, you know, if only there was a president that could be president instead of Trump who, you know, through his faith, believed in having some emergency preparedness and a year's worth of savings and food. This is as we we're going into the pandemic. And, you know, somebody that had, like, organized large-scale events like the Olympics and something like that. And I was just going on, and she's like, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'm just laying out the whole resume of Mitt Romney. And then I'm like, yeah, you know, that, that would be Mitt Romney, the person that everybody in the media villainized for a year to make sure that he couldn't beat Obama. And he would be the ideal candidate to have in the presidency in a moment of a national pandemic. And um, yeah, Mitt Romney's always been a politician who, I, who I've liked or admired or at least you know agreed with kind of him being a principled man. And it, it just reminds me of everybody I've ever talked to about Mormons who don't have strong friends who are Mormons. They always have that knee-jerk reaction where they're like, ooh, Mormons. And they're like, actually, all the Mormons I know are really nice guys or really great families or they, they kind of have their shit together. And so um, I'd love to hear, was your, um, you know, falling away from that faith or whatever you say, uh, was that more of a dogma thing? Was that more you didn't agree with the hierarchy? You just, you know, how, how does one fall away from uh, a faith? Because I, I, was, I was born and raised Presbyterian, which is like the Diet Coke of religions. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't hardcore. So I didn't have something to really fall away from. I just kind of faded away. So what, what is that like when you leave the church or start to make those decisions? So for me, it was all about whether it was true or not. And uh, it's the people who know me and know my family thought you know, it must have been really, really hard. My dad was actually a bishop of my congregation when I grew up and was uh, moved up the ladder 
uh, higher than that. So when I told him, uh, the way I explained it to him was that, you know, Mormonism promises you if you pray that you will be able to find out whether it's true or not. Like, that's the, the big promise they have. If you, like, really mean it and you ask God, is this true, and you're willing to do what it takes, if he says it is, that you're going to get an unmistakable answer. And I never got that. Um, and I, you know, I was told, you know, maybe you need to take a leap of faith, like going on a mission. So I, d- I did that. And before I left on my mission, I kind of like, I had a little you know, heart to heart with God or heart to empty space or whatever that would actually be. And I just, I said, Hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, but if by the end of it, I haven't got an answer, I'm, I'm out. And so when I went to talk to my dad about it after shortly after coming home from my mission, I, I just explained to him, I said, sort of, to me, it feels like if you lost your keys, if you couldn't find your keys, you're looking in your bedroom, maybe. How long are you going to look in your bedroom for your keys before you think, you know what, maybe I should start exploring the rest of the house, see if maybe I put them somewhere else. And that's how it was to me, because the answer I always got was just like, you know, try harder, faith harder, basically. Right. And, uh, and I wanted to see, you know, maybe, maybe there's something else out there. I'd already spent 20 years of my life uh, in that faith tradition and uh, hadn't, hadn't really felt like I found the truth. So you know, if the truth were my car keys, it's time to maybe move on to a different room of the house and, and start looking there. And do you think that bedroom door is forever shut or do you think there might be a time, I don't know, maybe when you have kids or you're at the top of a mountain or you're having a near death experience, do you think there's a time that bedroom door might open again? You'll be like, oh, now I know what they were talking about. Or is that chapter completely closed? I I think it's closed, but uh, I would, you know, I would, I would never say that there's zero chance of something happening, but uh, chances are very, very low. Yeah, interesting. I I always wonder, you know, again, having grown up Presbyterian, have a lot of friends that are devout, devout Catholics. um, I always wonder how many people in the church, if you gave them some type of truth serum, they would be like, yes, absolutely, 100%. um, There is a pick your spiritual being, pick your belief of the afterlife. And how many are there, if you gave them the truth serum, to say, it doesn't really matter whether there's a God or not. I'm here for the community and I'm here for kind of the moral guidance. And this just helps keep me on my path or keep me motivated because I find myself having a lot of arguments in defense of religion, even though I'm not a particularly religious person. Cause I'm like, Hey, you batshit crazy CrossFit person or vegan, or, you know, you're into your mind crystals or whatever. You're really just looking for a path and looking for community. And I wonder how much of that is for people in the church versus like a true believer. Yeah. I mean, you probably don't know a single person who's not religious, right? Even if it's just a secular religion, even if it's CrossFit or veganism or uh, wokeism. Or politics now. Politics. I mean, and I I do think politics is, um, I I think we can attribute some of these flare-ups in politics and how hot it has got to people just trying to fill a religion sized hole um, and and replacing that with politics. And, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing if it were done in a productive way, but it's, it's 99% of the time it's not. Right. Right. Yeah. It it does feel, and you could be on either side. You can think 
Trump was the savior. You could think Trump was the devil. You can think you can think whatever you think, but there does seem to be a lot of religious overtones in the political um, in the political space now. Because I know I, I've seen you and I try to do it. Be like, well, you know, I think kind of economically, da 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 da. And they're like, yeah, well, fuck that cocksucker. And I'm like, well, that feels a little bit more like faith than wanting to have a legitimate conversation, yeah. right? That, that feels a little bit more like somebody telling me in high school, like, you don't get it, Scott. You just have to believe harder. You have to faith harder. And it's like, well, no, can, I, can, we, can we look at some graphs or a chart or something? And I feel like that's where a lot of politics has gone. Well, and, and I, think, I think you're even underplaying how bad it is too because it's, it's more than that. It's they're looking to now their religious leaders to tell them what's correct. It's not even faith in a dogma, but it's, unfortunately, it's, it's the way that, you know, people might go to, uh, to a priest, especially with less established, you got a, a religion that had less established doctrine than the Catholic church. It's just, you're going and you're saying, I, I think what really bothers me is I know a ton of people who, if you ask them a question, um, Really what it depends on is whether their leaders, where they come down on that question. So if I was to say to somebody, you know, should we have a minimum wage? What should the minimum wage be? It's almost like they have to go check in and they have to say, I don't, I don't know, AOC, what, what should the minimum wage be? Mitch McConnell, what should the minimum wage be? And it's, it's a weird faith in people who, uh, you know, at, at least with religion, they're claiming that they're talking to God often and they're getting these, these things from on high, but really, like, what, what expertise do these politicians have yeah. in so many of these issues? And yet we look to them like experts and we look to the, to the party uh, to, to tell us what to think about something. And I'd love, I'd love to have conversations with people where I could find out what are all the things that you haven't heard from your favorite politicians yet what you're supposed to believe and you know to lock them out of of google and say no let's talk about these issues and and find out what you really think without somebody whispering in your ear right um i i think i think it's it's gotten to that point where it is like you need somebody to whisper in your ear and say what is what does this political scripture mean please tell me yeah father bernie and it is it is so weird how things have become so so dogmatic where I've had friends on the left and the right have very strong opinions about whether or not oh and as everybody knows we're filming this in my garage so <laughs> once in a while my kids come out to say goodnight and sometimes the garage door blows uh, really loud um, but you know I've asked friends on the left and the right who are like yeah you know fuck the Keystone pipeline that thing shouldn't be built it's a destruction of our environment and then I've heard people on the right be like oh can you believe these idiots are stopping the Keystone pipeline that's the lifeline for and then they stop. And I'll ask both my friends on the left and the right. I'm like, what is the Keystone Pipeline? And you can just see them freeze and be like, uh, uh, you know, it's if it's somebody on the left, that thing that's killing the environment. And if there's somebody on the right, you know, it's that job, that jobs thing. And I'm like, no, no, what is the Keystone Pipeline? And they're like, uh, you know, it's, it's for oil. And I'm like, do you know where it runs from? Do you know where it runs to? Do you know the, the idea behind it? Like who it's going to survive, who it's going to supply business-wise? 
No one has a clue. But somehow it's just become dogmatic where, you know, you have to check in with Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell and get your talking points. And then you got to go yell at other people who are probably your friends and do go to church with you and do go to CrossFit with you. I have a lot more in common with the guys at the cigar bar who are raving progressives than I do with Mitch McConnell, you know, the head of the Republican Senate minority now. I mean, it's it's just crazy to me how people will get into these fights. And I'm like, no, no, you and I are friends. I don't give a shit about those people. It's well, weird. And it's not just you having more in common with those guys at, at, uh, than you have with politicians, but also the politicians who look like mortal enemies have more in common with each other than they do with any of their constituents. I mean, of course. Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are the same person. I, I, I know that will make a lot of people upset, but it really, like, it's hard to tell what the difference between them is. Right, right. Because you can go to the media any day and just see false outrage that if you take a step back, you're like, oh, I, I could see myself agreeing with her. I could see myself agreeing with him. And they just immediately has to be this crazy false partisan outrage. And I'm like, no, they, they don't care. They just need votes. They just need to stay in power. Um, I hired a tutor as I was getting ready for this podcast because I'm like, I'm going to say something really dumb that like <laughs> just just I'm going to I'm going to mistake like the Bill of Rights and the Magna Carta or something. So let me get a, a, a political um, historical economic tutor. And I've been meeting with him a couple hours a week. And uh, he had me read this book called The Dictator's Handbook which I don't care if you're talking about the local politician in the city of commerce, you know, who is paying themselves $600,000 a year, all the way up to Obama, all the way over to Trump, all the way over to Hitler, Mussolini. Everybody just has their own personal interests at heart and they just want to get reelected and they just want to keep, keep making money and they just want to stay in power. And once you look at it from that, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it now. I get the game. It's a fascinating book. So we'll have to put a link, Chris, to the Dictator's Handbook because it's a, it's a great book that kind of explains like this power dynamic in politicians where like they just have to get elected. So they have to pay off a few influencers. They got to get a few key votes and then let that expand to outrage. And it's it's really a fascinating book. Yeah, I, uh, I haven't read that one, but I, I do often think about politics kind of from a evolutionary standpoint um and if you think of you know like political genes almost it's it's a survival of the fittest thing so which which are going to survive and i i think what politicians have figured out to do and the ones that have survived have done this and you see it in different forms throughout uh, throughout tons of different countries is that you used to have this idea that one party rule was the way to go i mean that's that's the best if you're an elite if you're a politician and you don't have any competition it's just your party you i i mean it's an authoritarian dream but what happens is the people get pissed off and then they go and they throw you out there's a revolution and uh and you're you you know half the time you're killed but uh, but otherwise you're not you're not getting back into power usually and then you might have, you know, some sort of populist government emerge or maybe some sort of freedom emerged. But what politics has figured out how to do, which I, I you know, it's, it's brilliant and evil, is this two-party system where now you take that same situation where let's say you're being abused as a populist by an authoritarian ruler. Instead of revolting, you just vote the other party in. And 
if they're doing basically the same thing, then it's really just this yo-yo between two different parties instead of there ever being any real revolution or any real change. Uh, and it just, it enables, it also enables the people who get thrown out of power for their abuses to just come straight back into power as soon as the other side messes up again. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because it's a, it's kind of a, uh, the false perception of choice, right? Yeah. Where it's just, the, the pendulum is swinging back and forth on the grandfather clock, but it's still the same grandfather clock. Yeah, no, the, the do you want the Republicans or the Democrats is exactly the same thing as the, is the hey kids, do you want the cauliflower or the broccoli? <laughs> right. Which, right. Which one do you want? You get to choose. Yeah. I'm, I'm a good person, so I'm giving you a choice. Yes, exactly. Limited to these very narrow... Yeah, that's the old school sales script, right? When you're trying to call somebody for an appointment, you're like, so is Tuesday at three or Thursday at five better? Like, <laughs> you know, both of them are made for me to show up to do a door-to-door sales pitch. Um, and I've got a buddy who sold Cutco knives, you know, door-to-door mm-hmm. friends and family. And he was like a master at it because he just wouldn't let somebody off the phone. He'd be like, okay, so Tuesday at three or Thursday at five? They'd be like, no, nah, that doesn't really work for me. Okay, so Saturday at four or Sunday at 11? Oh, you probably go to church. How about Sunday at five o'clock? And he would just keep going to where either they said, fine, come over, book the appointment, or they had to be so rude to him to get him to stop. Mm-hmm. Like, most Americans aren't willing to go there. Um, and so he would have ended, he ended up, you know, booking an appointment. And I think one year he sold $300,000 worth of knives just using that technique. And so that's basically what the U.S. government has done to us, right? Yeah. I mean, well, and at least with him, he's got a product that works semi-well. Because... You know, it's just not, it's not just that technique. At least he can show up and he can show you the scissors that can cut through a penny. Right. Um, I have some of those, by the way. $100, they're, they're $100 scissors. scissors. They are some they're, great scissors. They're great scissors. Um, Shout out to Cutco and their $100 scissors. <laughs> but, I, you know, what does the government have that works that well? I mean, we have, like, you even take the most basic things. I'm not even talking about the hard stuff that nobody can solve. Let's take the stuff like roads. We have crazy high taxes in California, crazy high taxes in Los Angeles. We have weather that is very friendly to roads compared to the rest of the country. We have the, I think, second highest parking ticket prices, and that's supposed to be so that we can do better maintenance on the roads. Uh, And it's just, the roads are awful. It's potholes everywhere. Uh, They can't even do that very very basic function i mean if they were if they were tricking me but i was still getting a pair of scissors that could cut through a penny i'd be like all right like maybe i shouldn't have spent money on this but these scissors are pretty cool right uh there's not really much i can think of that government does where i'm like you know what i uh i'm I'm really getting hosed on these taxes but at least fill in the blank. And, and those things are really rare. Yeah. Do you think there is anything that the government is doing well? Cause like, Hey, you know, when I, when I, when I drop a deuce in my toilet and I flush the, the, the toilet, I'm very glad that my plumbing works. You know, is that worth a 50% tax rate? Probably not. I'm sure somebody, I could pay a lot less to make sure that my waste was disposed of. But is there anything that you can give local or state or federal government credit for of like, hey, yeah, this is kind of where government should be doing their thing and they should be, you know, insert whatever, the guiding hand of this or the backbone of this or getting people to cooperate in this way before we trash the government for the next two hours. Yeah. Is, is it fair to give them credit for anything? So I would, I would like to see more experiments in private ownership of land. 
but I think as far as it goes right now, they don't do a horrible job with the national parks. Um, I would say the national park system is, is fairly decent. Um, and, and some of the stuff connected to that is fairly decent. I think, and it's a lot, I think it has to do with when these are difficult problems that deal with public goods. So where you would have the tragedy of the commons is a real issue. Explain that for people that haven't read, you know, how to be a libertarian. Yeah. So, you know, the, the tragedy of the commons is if you have, uh, let's say, I think the example, the example it stems from is a grazing field. So let's say you have this, this field, this commons that is a bunch of grass and we all own it. So what is preventing me from just sticking my cattle there every day until all the grass is gone? Uh, it, and it's, it's these situations that create sort of a race to the bottom in a lot of times or just where it's a public good and your incentive as an individual to protect that public good just doesn't cut it. So, you know, you can think of air pollution as the, the same the same thing, you know, let's say we live in a zero regulation society and you've got a factory owner that just wants to, you know, pollute more because it costs him less. Now there's, there's theories in libertarianism that can address some of these problems. Um, like maybe the residents band together and they decide they will pay him to, put in some, you know, CO2 scrubbers or whatever it is so that the cost doesn't come out of his pocket and it is a public good. So the public's paying for it. Um, and so that's, you know, coast theorem. If anybody wants to get, you know, really wild on a Friday night and go, go look that up, go look up some Wikipedia. Um, but I would say that that's the, the greatest argument I can see for government and some of the area where they maybe do the least bad is in those areas that address things that are truly public goods. Uh, Maybe, you know, just uh, regulating the, the airwaves. I mean, we have a finite spectrum. So how's that going to work if it's just left to an unregulated market? Is that going to be people putting up radio towers and just trying to drown each other out by, Oh. pumping out more and more power. Do you know how badly I want to just put up a tower in my backyard and like drown out 95.5 or something? You know, some <laughs> some radio station from my childhood that I loved. What was what was Knack, Chris? Do you remember they used to do mandatory Metallica at 9 p.m.? It was like the hard rock station in L.A. Um, I think it was 105.5. Look it up. Look up what was Knack in L.A. I love that radio station. Mm-hmm. And when they went out, I was like, fuck it. I'm never listening to terrestrial radio again. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, satellite radio was just starting to come out. I was so mad. I started looking into it, and this is how I found out about the whole Federal Trade Commission and the community. 1055. 105.5 KNAC, yeah. Shout out to KNAC from my childhood. 9 o'clock, mandatory Metallica. I would stay up every night to listen to that. And... Um, and, and then that's how I found out about all the regulations. Like, oh, no, the government completely controls who can be on the airwaves, what frequency they can broadcast on. If you broadcast on an AM or FM radio frequency illegally, you can do a lot of jail time. Yeah. And I was like, that might be one of my earliest experiences where I was like, oh, that's weird that the government can threaten your livelihood or your ability to imprison you for almost anything. I mean, 
theoretically, this podcast studio is probably not fire retardant sound panels. Like I'm probably breaking eight federal laws just by building a podcast studio or not federal, maybe state laws by building a podcast studio in my garage. You know, the wind is beating at our garage door. So there's some weird background noise. There's probably some safety thing that I should have had you sign a waiver or, you know, I had to have a disability ramp or something. There's, you know, there's just, there's just so many weird things. Like it just frustrates me how much stuff the government can put you in jail for. And I think that's probably the number one reason I would consider myself a libertarian, although I feel a little politically orphaned right now like you do. Yeah, I think. And so, you know, we keep throwing out this. Are we libertarian? Or are we are we not? Um, I I it's hard for me. I think like the small L versus large L distinction is a is a useful one, um, which just is, you know, are you libertarian or are you a libertarian? Are you you know, is libertarian an adjective or a noun for you? Or are you part of the party? Right. Um, and I, my favorite, I think, comes from Nick Gillespie, who's a editor at Reason. And he calls libertarianism a pre-political impulse. So he likes to think of it not even as like a, you know, a political catechism or, or, or dogma or set of beliefs, but an impulse that, uh, that tends toward liberty. Uh, that... If any problem arises, your first instinct is not going to be there should be a law, but you know you're, it's going to take a, a whole lot to convince you that the best solution to a problem is some sort of government intervention. And your assumption is always that the free market or that individuals working together could handle it a lot better. These terms all have been bastardized, right? Because if I really go back to kind of like fundamental political beliefs or political parties, I'm probably a liberal small L, not not capital L, mm -hmm. you know, borderlining on progressivism or the current Democratic Party, but I'm probably more of a small L liberal thinker, which if we could take that term back, I think liberal probably means a little bit more conservative federal government, a little bit more conservative fiscal policy, but a stay out of my bedroom, let me smoke what I want, drink what I want, sleep with who I want. Like the small L liberal, I feel like just got hijacked by the Democratic Party. And now, much like you, I also feel orphaned because there's a lot of stuff that my more progressive friends say that I'm like, yeah, it totally makes sense. Of course, of course, that's how it should be. And then when we put it into practice at the federal government level, I'm like, oh no, I can't agree with you there. Like, I, I don't, I don't think there should be a law that makes this and this and this because I want, I want to have a little bit more liberal government where they stay out of it. And I just, I don't know how to kind of square that circle. Yeah, um, because the, all the terms are bastardized. They're all bastardized. I think to give uh, progressives their due, uh, because I, I disagree with progressivism probably more than any other. Me too. Philosophy, but. To give them their due, I think they're, they're actually pretty decent at identifying problems. And, and problems that other people just kind of wave away and say, that's eh, not a big deal. Something like income inequality. I think income inequality is a huge deal. I don't know what the best ways to address it are, and I think the progressive ways to address it are, are absolutely insane. But it, it bothers me when libertarians or conservatives just wave that away as if it's not an issue. And they, they go a lot to the Margaret, Margaret Thatcher quote, which is, you know, that progressives would rather have, you know, the, the, they'd rather have like people in more poverty as long as people were more equal. Yeah. Whereas 
conservatives, even if the gap grows, they're happy as long as things are getting better for, for both the rich and for the poor. And I think that ignores a lot of human psychology and a lot of what actually makes us happy. And, and it is kind of a, it's a difference between what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for stuff, for production, for GDP, or are you optimizing for human happiness and human flourishing? And I think if you're optimizing for human happiness, you have to recognize that we're hierarchical creatures. We, uh, I mean, one of the hugest things in anybody's life is mate selection. And mate selection is hugely affected even if you're better off than poor people were 100 years ago. If you are, you know, if the, if the average person is 100 times wealthier than you, mate selection there, like you're, you're kind of screwed. I mean, you know, maybe you've got a great personality and you'll roll the dice and you'll get lucky, but, but really I, I think those human relationships that we form, they depend a lot on status and, uh, and people like to ignore the importance of status. Non-progressives, I think, ignore the importance of status. And that's one area where they really, uh, I, I, th I think get it right than most of the other, more right than most of the other groups as far as identifying the problem. Yeah, it's, it's a really confusing dilemma, right? Because kind of what we're talking about, even though this has become a, a talking point of a lot of people on the right, is we are really talking about facts versus feelings. Because factually, it is the best time in human history to be poor. If you're poor in America by you know, congressional budget or congressional, uh, uh, congressional office of the budget, what congressional? CBO, yeah. CBO, congressional yeah. Budget, budget office. Thank you. So by the CBO standards, if you're poor, you know, and you're only making $24,000 a year and you only have a TV and you only have a cell phone and your five car fam, you know, your five person family only has one car. And yeah, maybe sometimes there's times when you're making legitimate choices on like, do we pay the rent or food? That's all horrible from a feeling standpoint. But logistically or factually or historically, it is the best time ever to be poor. Like if you're poor in America, you have certain things available to you. Even going down to the public library and accessing free internet, you know, that's a, that's a privilege that 99% of all living humans throughout history never had. And so it's interesting because that is factual. So I can understand the Republican conservative narrative on that. But then I can also, to your point, understand the more progressive narrative of like, yeah, okay, that's great. You can pay your rent sometimes, but if you can't find a mate or if you can't envision a future where your child does better than you does, than you did, you know, that's just soul crushing. So I, I get both points. Yeah, you can also envision a world where everybody's needs are, are met, their basic needs are met. But let's say that the, you know, top 1% has, I don't know, 99.999% of the wealth. Then all of a sudden, unless you're part of that cabal, unless you're part of that group, you're locked off from beautiful things like oceanfront property. Finite, when you talk about anything that's, that's truly finite, I think you run into problems there when it comes to income inequality that aren't readily acknowledged by people who are like, well, basic needs are being met. Uh, but, but what are we trying to optimize for? Are we trying to optimize for, you know, I don't know, uh, Cool Ranch Doritos, you know, having just like amazing flavors. Um, 
are you trying to optimize for getting enough calories? Are you trying to optimize for those kinds of basic needs? Or are we trying to optimize for feeling like a deep sense of happiness and purpose and, and you know, the, the things that really do make life worth living? It's interesting you use the beachfront property. I don't know if you did this on purpose because this is one of the big examples that Thomas Sal uses in his book, uh, Basic Economics, is he says, once you assign a value to something and you say, hey, it's better to live beachfront property than it is to live in the middle of East LA or you know the 909 San Bernardino. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. You know, We've assigned a value in our society that having beachfront property is more valuable than living in San Bernardino. And so the problem is there is, and you said it, a finite amount of beachfront property. So once we've assigned a value to something, it inherently means we can't fulfill the need of every person. So we couldn't make everybody happy because there's just not enough beachside property, right? Well, I think if people, if, if that income gap, um, if people are closer together in income, I think you can solve it in a different way because, you know, everything's trade-offs. So nobody's rich enough to own any, everything. So even if this is limited, um, even if somebody, you know, maybe it's a decision you're making and you're naturally going to feel happier about making a decision. Like I could live in a shack on the beach and really watch my food budget or, you know, I can go live like a king in El Centro. Um, and the weather's not going to be as nice, but you know what? I'm going to have such a big house and I'm going to be able to you know, order takeout every night or whatever it is. And I, I think as long as we're close enough in income, as long as regular people, as long as that gap isn't too huge to where the elites just own everything that they want to, then people can make those individual trade-offs, right? And, uh, and the limited beachfront property, it will naturally reach some sort of market, market equilibrium. Um, but I, I think a lot of that breaks down once, once it's, you know, the, once it's Bill Gates versus me. Yeah. And so if, and, and I have to think through this further to see if I believe that this is a problem, but let's just assume, let's just keep pulling this thread. If we assume that this is a problem, what are some possible solutions? Because the current use of, let's just call it force, because the government can put you in prison for not paying your taxes. The, 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 current, the current version of redistributing that income is taken from Bill Gates to put in the pocket of Scott Groves so that we can be more closely equal. And I have so many problems with that. One, because I don't want the government using force and the threat of imprisonment to do that. Um, and two, because in fairness, Bill Gates has provided value a hundred thousand times, a million times, a billion times more value to society than Scott Groves. Because you could put me on an island for a thousand years. I'm never walking off with windows. Like it's just, it's never, it's never going to happen. So how do we, how do we address that? Or how do we even conceptualize through that? I'm sure you've done some thinking on this. Yeah. Um, so I think that with, so with the Bill Gates example, and I think it is a good example because it's not an unfair one where it's like inherited money or, right. you know, or, or something that was completely made uh, using nefarious means. He, he provided legitimate value. Um. I think the first thing I'd say to it is that 
what you're talking about, the, the redistribution, never works that way. They might say it works that way. They'll show some numbers where it's working that way. But just like we said earlier that the you know, parking tickets in Los Angeles are the second highest in the country, um, that's a regressive tax, not a progressive tax. That hurts poor people more than anybody else. Car registration here, way higher than anywhere else. And so it never even ends up being, even if that was a solution, it never ends up being that Bill Gates' wealth is truly like redistributed, making us all more equal. Because the wealthy people are naturally going to have more influence in this game. So what you'll have is, is fake progressive tax schemes that end up actually being regressive. Yeah, and explain that a little bit more because I think there's some terms there that some yeah, of the yeah. audience won't, sure. won't quite understand. So a progressive tax uh, is, is one that taxes rich people more and poor people less. So uh, you're, you're basically trying to even things out a little bit. And a regressive tax is one that taxes poor people more and gives rich people, uh, they're able to, to find loopholes or... Um, maybe it's even, you know, a regressive tax. If you just, if it wasn't sneaky, it would just look like poor people pay 30% tax and rich people pay a 10% tax. Uh, and, and, you know, we have the opposite of that right now, which is a progressive tax, but they, there are so many other taxes, fees, and, um, and other ways of, you know, inflating the currency, um, there's just a, so many ways that people are able to work around that while still pretending we have a progressive tax system. And actually, what we probably have is something that I don't know a word for, but it's something that where the poor people pay less and the rich people pay less, but the people in the middle get squeezed. And I don't know. There, there probably is a term for that. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's called the middle class getting fucked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's what I call it. Because I think um, you know. So in in my mortgage business, I analyze tax returns for a living to see if people would qualify for a loan. And more or less, and somebody's going to fact check me on this, and I'm going to I'm going to blow it up. But whatever. Somewhere between about zero and fifty thousand, you effectively pay no taxes. You know, the first whatever twenty four thousand is free, and I'm going to get these numbers all wrong, but in principle, I'm right. The first 24000 is free, and then there's, you know, a child tax credit into this and an earned income credit and all kinds of stuff. So you can make up to about forty dollars or $50,000 in America and pay very little federal tax, especially for what I think you do get in return for that money. And then I don't know where the threshold is. I've always tried to figure this out. It's probably somewhere around four or 500000 with self-employed people who can either file on a Schedule C or a corporation. And then it's probably somewhere around a million dollars if you're on a W-2 getting hosed. Those people just get just get nailed for every possible tax, very little deductions. It seems like, you know, every four years with the different presidents, we're having this fight, you know, playing in the margins. But like, I don't care if I'm paying because I'm on a W-2 and I do well. If I'm paying somewhere between 39 and 49 percent effective tax rate, it sucks no matter whether it's 39 or 49. I, I, I'm not in love with Trump for making it 39. I don't necessarily hate Biden for making it 49. It just all sucks. And then somewhere... When you start to get over a million dollars or so in income and you can diversify in property that you can then take depreciation or more of your money's coming from passive uh, investments that's taxed at 15% and 30, instead of 39%, capital gains tax, 
these hedge fund managers, you know, paying themselves through capital gains so they get tax less, which I'm not faulting them. Like I would take advantage of the same thing, but it does seem to be those mid wage earners that are just getting hit with the brunt of the percentage of taxes um, as a, as a nominal percentage. Of course, we know, I think we're at a point where the top 10% of taxpayers in America, and Chris, maybe you could fact check this for me. I think we're at a point where the top 10% of taxpayers in America do pay 80% of the federal tax or something to that. So it is, it is progressive. It is kind of solving that problem. Yeah, it might even be more than that. I, I, I don't know what the most recent numbers are, but that, that's, I mean, it, and it's been like the top 5% pays 60%. I mean, it's- Of all federal income tax, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. Um, the top 1% pay 38.5% of all taxes, and the top 10% pay 70.1%. Yeah, so top 10% of taxpayers in America pay 70% of the entire federal bill, which seems crazy, and it doesn't. It also doesn't seem like it's solving that problem of income inequality. No. So we've got the most progressive tax system where 10% of Americans are paying 70% of the bill, and income inequality is just getting worse. But also, people need to think beyond... I, I, I think when you're thinking about our tax system, it we make the mistake of looking at federal income tax numbers and not looking at what you're paying in your neighborhood for sales tax, what you're paying for, you know, those middle wage earners, they start getting the nicer cars and then their registration here in California is what, 400 bucks. I mean, something, something insane if you're driving yes. a pretty good new car and that ends up being a, a decent percentage of your income. Um, all of those fees and I, they're just, they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, anything, so, anything you want to do, you're going to get taxed. You so wanna, you want to die, you'll you're going to get taxed. You'll love this. The, the very first year, about 10 years ago that I made what I considered good money, I took my, I'm, cause I'm a glutton for punishment. I took my federal tax bill, my state tax bill. And then I took, I, I went through the line items on all my bills and, you know, if in California, if you're pumping gas at $4 a gallon, $2 of that gallon is taxes. And then I factored in, you know, on my cell phone bill, my cell phone's $113 instead of $77 because of this $1 tax and this tax and that tax. And then I factored in, like, I have to have a license through the state of California just to do my job. So that's $300 a year. And then the continuing education for that, which the government requires, is another 300 By the time I got done adding up all the taxes and hidden taxes that the government charged me. And then I factored in, well, whatever was left over, I spent and I got charged another 10% in sales tax on. I was at a 58% effective tax rate, not marginal, like effective. 58 cents of every one of my dollars that first year that I made good money um, went to the government in state, local sales, car registration, parking tickets, because I, I got a lot of those at the time. I've now solved that problem. I just carry quarters everywhere. But it was crazy. I was like... In some ways, I feel very blessed that also as a guy who barely made it through high school that I can make this kind of money and have this type of impact in the job that I do. But 58% is going to the government somehow, some way. I mean, it was just insanity. And and I remember there was a year where I couldn't even talk to like hardly any of my more liberal friends because I was like, have you actually ever done the math? <laughs> it's crazy. Well, and the crazy thing is that's not even all the math. You couldn't. Oh do, God! Don't make me cry. But yes, go ahead. You couldn't do all the math because you know everything you buy. It's not just that you're adding 
the sales tax at the point of consumption, but how many times has every part of that product been taxed before it got to you? Right. So you're also, you know, you're, you're buying a cigar or you're buying, uh, I mean, a car is probably a really good example there because you have, you know, maybe, maybe they had steel that was subject to a tariff. Maybe they had, uh, there's just, there are so many points along that production line where, where stuff's going to get taxed and that you're not even going to be able to calculate. So there's also the tax of, of paying more for every single thing that you buy, even though you're buying it with money that's already been taxed and paying a sales tax at the point of consumption. Yeah. And then if you invest the money and you make interest, you have to pay tax on that. And then if you end up with too much of it, when you die, you have to pay tax on that. And then it's like, you know, I just, I, I, I'm never, I have this conversation with a lot of people when I'm doing loan applications. I'm like, hey, I don't begrudge you. I'm no fan of the IRS either, but I have to explain to you why you don't qualify for this loan. Your top number is X and your bottom number that you actually pay taxes on is 30% of X. And again, I'm not judging you because I'm no, I'm no fan of the IRS either, but what you're doing is you're avoiding taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do that, what you're telling my underwriter is that you have all these expenses to generate that much revenue and, and I can't count money that you're hiding from the government. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and, and everybody does it, everybody does it. I've never had a client, I've looked at tens of thousands of tax returns probably in the last 20 years. I've never had a client that just pays more taxes than they're supposed to because they want to. Um, and it's just, it's, it's comical. It's comical. So wh where else do you see in your kind of political thought process of a little bit more, maybe libertarian with a small L where, where do you land on taxes? Should there be taxes? Should there be a common good fund? Should there be social safety nets? Like where do you think we should be getting taxed and where should that money be going? Um, so the, I would say the should question first. So should there be a safety net? Yes, absolutely. Is the government the most effective means to create that safety net? I, I am very doubtful of that. Um, as far as where I am on taxes, I, I, think the, I think the anarchists are right, at least in principle. Maybe it would lead to a worse world. I don't know. Um, I, I, there's so many factors that like gaming something like that out is really difficult, but I, I do yeah. think taxation is theft. It's not... It's not something you agreed to. It's something that you pay because, you know, it, it is at the end of the day at the threat of a gun. If you don't pay your taxes, eventually, after refusing enough, somebody's going to show up at your house to throw you in a cage. And if you say you don't have the right to throw me in a cage, then there's going to be a conflict and, and people are going to get shot. Um, so I... I I think at least on principle, that's, that's 100% correct. Um, and the really, the really boring term that I almost never tell people, if, if I had to call myself something, I would call myself a Burkean anarchist. Um, and, you know, Burke, uh, Edmund Burke was the father of conservatism. And uh, his oversimplified philosophy was just that, like, it's better to move slow than it is to move fast in these kinds of things. Fast and recklessly, and you get the French Revolution, but if you understand that institutions are important and you try to maintain institutions even throughout Reformation and Revolution, then you get something closer to America, where we wanted 
someone else to rule us. We wanted to throw off a colonial power that was absentee anyway. It wasn't a bottom-up recalibration of society the way that the French Revolution was. And so um, I I think another one that's brought up a lot lately is uh, Chesterton's Fence, for all the the religious people who know Chesterton. Uh, He had this... uh, the story you would tell people that if you know you came across a fence the liberal is the person who looking at the fence and not seeing a reason for it being there says tear it down there's no reason for it to be there and the conservative will say i don't understand why this fence is here i need to go find out why this fence is here before i can tear it down so edmund burke uh as kind of the father of conservatism um his whole idea was just that you you don't revolutions are 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 messy and utopian and don't work for that reason but when you move more slowly you can kind of maintain important institutions figure out what works and what doesn't and so i call myself a burkean anarchist because i i think the anarchists have all the right arguments but if i could flip a switch today and have us be in an anarchist society, I, I wouldn't do it. If I could flip a switch that just removed every level of government, um, I, I think that would be a recipe for disaster. Right. Maybe I'd be wrong, but I just think like we've, we've built a lot, so the precautionary principle is important. Like we should, we should think a little bit before we just start tearing things down uh, because they aren't perfect. You know, uh, and, and so where I think like taxation is theft and there should be no taxation. And I think you're perfectly within your right. If you are a tax protester or a tax avoider, um, I also don't know that flipping that switch over the time period of just like a moment would be good for us. I think it would probably be bad. Do you think this is kind of where or right-leaning or conservative people, conservative parties, <clears throat> and I'm not necessarily talking about like modern-day Republicans. I'm just saying a more conservative thought process where they're losing the culture war because I, I love that Chesterton example of the fence, right? It's like progressives, like we always got to progress. We have to keep pushing the, the boundaries. And it's like, so they come across a fence and they want to tear it down. And it's like, I understand that impulse. But I think the conservatives have lost the culture war of saying, no, there might have been a reason for that fence, right? And, and we see this, the progressive mindset is anything conservative, and I don't mean conservative Republican, I mean conservative in having some historical tradition, whether it's the church or the Boy Scouts, or now just the idea that there's two different sexes. Like, no, we have to tear that down. We have to destroy it. Anything that has been in the past, we just have to keep pushing forward and progress, which I understand, especially to younger people, that's really appealing, right? Who would not want to be on the side of progress? But I think what fun, some people forget is that, and I think where, where the conservatives are losing the, the, the PR war, is that when you tear down that fence, sometimes that fence was holding something back or sometimes that fence had a purpose or a meaning or was there for things that we can't quite understand. And I just, I feel like this is such a common sense argument that like, we'll call them Republicans or conservatives or whatever, they're just losing. They're just not explaining the argument well. I, yeah, I think they come from a difficult position to begin with, but I, I, I think we're, that pushing the boundary, I, I, I think where they need to have more message discipline 
is what happens with that. And, and in explaining, I think a problem too is that here in the U.S. Uh, with the Cold War, um, with Nazism, we buy into this very human impulse of um, heroes and villains of stories. And I, I think when you really sit back and, and think about how did the Nazis view themselves? How did the Trotskyites view themselves? They were both, you know, sure, we'll call them fascists, whatever, but they were both, you know, progressives in that conservative versus progressive sense of the word. They were revolutionaries who wanted to make a better world. And yeah, you, fa fascism is actually a progressive thought process. Yeah. You want to change things dramatically and, you know, having hindsight's 2020, obviously, um, the Nazis were, uh, were on the wrong side of history, but their party was the socialist party. Right. And, and fascism. So I, I think fascism has become synonymous with racism too, because the fascist movements did devolve into that. But I think it's important to remember that fascism emerged in Italy before in Germany and it, and it emerged as, as a, a very non-racist, secular. I mean, the, the racism only started occurring when they needed scapegoats for why their system wasn't working, uh, as far as Italian fascism goes. A German fascism followed Italian fascism and, and pretty much started out anti-Semitic from the get-go. But, but there was a long period of Italian fascism before that turned anti-Semitic in any way. And... So yeah, I, th I think just the 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 progressive mindset is something that that needs to be guarded against. And conservatives, as as you were saying, they lost the cultural battle. And I think part of that is conservatives went so hard against the the, the communists that they made communists unrelatable. When you know it should be more of a cautionary tale than the tale of like some. Know, uh, you know satan incarnate it's not the antichrist arising in the ussr it is here's a bunch of people who really wanted to improve their society decrease income inequality make people on a more level playing field and then this is what happened from their good intentions and i i don't think conservatives can let go of you know of communists as the Crimson Tide enemy and you know the enemy of a bunch of Chuck Norris movies and I I, I think that you got a little bit of a Chuck Norris vibe going right now by the way <laughs> so you know cut off those jean shorts and start kicking some ass by the way sorry to be to throw you off there but when you said Chuck Norris I was like oh you got a little bit of Chuck Norris vibe going well that'll be my new yeah I'm 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 trying to pitch Invasion USA but it's you know me as the anarchist Chuck Norris there you go liberating everyone you know i i feel like um th this is interesting you bring up the communism example of the 70s 80s and then maybe trickling into the 90s you know there was a time when i feel like liberals small l that were fighting back against the you know reagan republicans you know at that moment in time the liberals were like hey i think you're wrong but i don't think you're evil and I think the Republicans thought like, no, you're wrong because you're evil. Mm -hmm. 
And over about the last 30 years, and, and maybe this is just like old man, get off my grass as I've gotten older and more conservative or more libertarian, I feel like that switched a little bit now where most Republicans, I would call them like the modern day uh, Republicans, even the, even the talking heads like Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin or any of these, these type of characters, I think they think that liberals or Democrats are wrong, but I don't think they're evil. Whereas I think the flip is the, the switch has flipped a little bit now where if you're squarely in the Democratic Party, you don't think conservatives are wrong. You think they're evil. And I think that's a really dangerous place. I think it was a dangerous place in the 80s, as you're alluding to, when conservatives thought that about communists, when like, hey, these people just probably were doing what they thought was right or probably doing what they thought they needed to do to stay in power. And now I feel like that, that switch has flipped a little bit where like the other side of the political chasm now thinks you're evil if you disagree with them. Well, and I wonder, with you saying that now, I wonder, will the pendulum swing the other way now? I mean, will that end up being, uh, will that end up being an Achilles heel of progressives who I think are, are ascendant right now? Maybe not, maybe not as uh, ascendant as they were in you know two thousand eight, but I think they are still gaining power. But I, I do wonder, you know, something like that. I don't, I don't think is going to bode well in the end. Uh, if they can't, if they can't, uh, you know, exercise a little empathy and understand or pitch their foes as being misguided rather than evil, I, I think that's going to be detrimental to the long-term viability of their movement. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, pe people ask me, because, again, I didn't vote for Trump but I found myself having a lot of arguments in defense of him because my liberal friends couldn't understand how the country ended up with Trump. And I'm like, it's very simple. If you walk around for eight years under Obama and anybody who disagrees with an Obama policy, you call a racist, a bigot, an ignorant fuck who just, you know, is clinging to their prayers and their guns. If you insult somebody at their core character for eight years and then the king of the assholes comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to insult these guys right back. Of course, that's who you end up with. Because when you've villainized the other side of the party and you're telling them that they are evil and if they disagree with the affordable health care plan, then they must be racist. Well, then, you know what? They're probably going to vote for a guy who has racist tendencies because they're like, well, at least this dude pushes back and fights for me. To me, it's so clear why Trump got elected and I'm shocked he didn't get reelected. Doesn't mean I like the guy. Doesn't mean I voted for him, but I understand it. And I, I can't figure out why my more liberal friends can't understand that, at least as a principle, even if they disagree with it. It, it just, it's, it's kind of shocking to me that they're shocked. Yeah, I, I wish that uh, schools still did debate and did debate where you get assigned a position. Because I think that's, I think that's one of the biggest things that's missing from people is they, they cannot argue the other side. Um, Brian Kaplan is a really like amazing, innovative economist. And he got into a few arguments with Paul Krugman and he had a really interesting thing. There's this thing called the Turing test that, uh, it was, you know, created by, was it Alfred Turing? Is that his name? The, uh, one of the, the fathers of modern computing. And he had this whole idea that you would have an AI and you would have a panel. So imagine yourself like, you know, 
chatting online with a panel of five people. And one of those people is an AI. And you're supposed to identify the AI. Now, the AI has passed the Turing test when it's unidentifiable, when people start guessing that the real people are actually the robots. And uh, Kaplan introduced this idea of an ideological Turing test. So one of the things that I've, I've put on myself and that I think people, it would be good if more people put on themselves is don't pretend like you understand an ideology unless you think you could get on one of these panels. Like, I can't claim that I understand progressivism unless I could get on a panel where there's four progressives and then there's me. And there's people asking us questions, trying to find out who's not really a progressive. And unless I can make arguments that are that convincing, that where I can steel man instead of straw man the arguments of progressivism, then I, then I don't get it. You know, it's the, the he who only understands his own side, understands little of that. I think it's, you know, you, you know less about your own ideology, but also you know less about the people that you're dealing with. Yeah, can, I think that's fascinating. I've got a book back here somewhere. I'm, I'm reading a couple books on race, uh, one that I will probably agree with and two or three that I will probably venomously disagree with. But I think it's important to read the other side of the equation so you can understand where they're at. So can you explain that straw man versus steel man? Because this is something that I think is very important to people that want to be politically knowledgeable and have genuine arguments. Can you, can you explain that to people and, and how maybe they could work that into their life? Yeah, so the straw man is a logical fallacy, and it's just, it's, the illusion is to uh, like a scarecrow or like a, a human-style person that is made out of straw. And if you're going to go fight somebody, how easy is it to fight a straw man? You're not, you're not fighting anything real. You're fighting something that's fake. And so when you make uh, your opponent's argument into a caricature, and you fight the caricature instead of fighting the strongest points of their argument, that's fighting a straw man. So give us a classic straw man argument right now in 2021 that's happening in the political arena. Oh, and uh, so <laughs> I, I, if, you, if you go outside without a mask, it's because you don't care about grandparents dying. Right, right, right. If you disagree with the minimum wage, you're a racist. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, all of those are, are straw man arguments. And if you want to be a whole person who, who is making better decisions and who is, who is actually understanding both sides of the argument, who is going to maybe convince people, then I think instead of saying, you know, people, you can, and you can still hold your same opinion, you can say, you know what, there isn't, there isn't really any evidence right now that, transmission of coronavirus happens outside especially in daylight it's it's sensitive to the sun you know having you know a, a bunch of open air it just dissipates so quickly that you don't get the viral load needed it's not really an issue but i think the issue there is we need to be really careful because viruses evolve and we don't want this, uh, this virus to learn how to transmit itself outdoors. And the more that we're careless outdoors, 
the greater the possibility that the virus will be able to mutate to start transmitting itself that way. That would be where you're, you're still steel manning the other side of the argument, but you're sticking with your position that you think everybody should wear masks outdoors. Uh, and, you know, I hope people immediately realize that that's a much stronger argument than saying, you know, I saw this person, they were 100 yards from anybody else, they were in a park, but they were not wearing a mask, they want my grandmother to die. Right. That's, that's just a stupid argument. And, right. and it turns anybody off that you're trying to convince, and if you really do think coronavirus is a, a, as big of a problem as it is, if you're not... If you take it very seriously and it's not just because you're virtue signaling, it's not just because you're trying to come across as a good person or you're trying to uh, exercise status over people who you think don't follow the trademark science. Um, I think if, if, you are, if you're doing that, then what you're going to do is you're going to look at what are the arguments that are going to be the most convincing to people. Because if you really believe this is as dangerous as it is, then you're going to put your ego aside and you're instead going to say, okay, like what arguments would convince these people who I disagree with? That instead of dismissing the people that you disagree with and trying to use it as a cudgel or as a put down to elevate your own status. If you're doing that, if you're just if you're just calling people idiots because they don't wear masks, then I actually don't believe that you think COVID is that serious because you're not trying to convince these people. Right. You're just trying to elevate yourself. Right. Yeah. I had a, I had an experience very early on where, um, on Facebook of all places, a friend of mine who's a realtor that I work with from time to time was at an outdoor church gathering because they couldn't go to church inside. So they had this big outdoor gathering and, and he, for some context, his wife had some horrific medical problems a couple of years ago, year ago. And um, thankfully, she made a full recovery. And while she was making the recovery, a lot of the other realtors in this guy's office um, pulled together and um, they uh, donated some money to, to help out the family and whatnot. It was a very, very, very noble thing. She made a full recovery. It was awesome. But they were there doing their church thing. People started piling on at an insane level of, oh, nobody's wearing masks. You guys are trying to kill people. The comments got so inflammatory that people who this guy knew and worked with in a professional environment were effectively saying, I shouldn't have donated to your wife's fund because she should die if that's the kind of irresponsibility you're going to take. And it was so crazy that then I started being a little snarky and I was like, hey buddy, uh, his, his name's Aldo. I was like, Aldo, what you should have done is you should have worn a ski mask and then gone and burned down the local target and looted because then all these people would be okay with it. I immediately got the wrath of the, of the mob. You're a racist, Scott, you're a piece of shit. I'm never using you as a lender. What's funny is what most of these people don't know is behind the scenes, I was direct messaging and texting with Aldo. I'm like, hey, Aldo, like, we don't know a lot about this disease. Your wife had these major medical problems like less than two years ago. She's probably in the target demographic of people who are gonna get fucked if she gets COVID. So be careful, man. Like, I'm not telling you what to do because I'm trying to virtue signal. I actually care about your wife's health. We don't know enough about this disease. I spent a lot of time talking to a couple of friends that are doctors of mine. They're legitimately concerned. So maybe you should be legitimately concerned. He started wearing a mask 
not because of the virtue signaling, not because of all the people that were calling me a racist and him a piece of shit and that his wife should die, because somebody introduced some facts. And to your point, I think at that moment in time, my opinion has now changed as the science has evolved. At that moment in time, I think I was taking COVID more seriously than the virtue signalers, because instead of calling him an asshole, I was DMing him on the side being like, hey man, here's all the reasons you might want to wear a mask. And I hate that at such a high level, but I just don't have enough hours in the day to fight all these people on Facebook, nor do I want to, because I just think they're ignorant pieces of shit. Um, and it, it was just, it was shocking to me how people think that's the way to get to change somebody's mind. But what you just said is like, no, they don't actually take it serious. They're not actually trying to change somebody's mind. They're trying to elevate their own status and virtue signal, which now in retrospect, that interaction makes total sense to me. Yeah, I think especially the the lower status somebody is to to start with. I, I think a lot of the a lot of what's wrapped up in progressivism, the, the anti racist stuff, um, you know, more likely to take coronavirus masking very, very, very seriously. I would I would never assume this of any individual. But I think that there is a phenomenon of lower status individuals seeing opportunities to assert dominance over people who are of higher status. And it's a rare enough opportunity that, that there are a lot of people who seize on that. You know, they can now yell at some random, well-heeled person on the street because that person isn't wearing a mask, so they're a bad person or an evil person. And they can elevate in their own minds and, and try in the minds of their friends to elevate their own status above that person, at least on, on some score. Why, why do you think the mask issue, the school closing, the, <clears throat> the response to COVID, why do you think it's fallen down party lines? Because I could understand based on what you just said, you know, wealthier, more affluent, traditional, healthier, healthier, better access to medical care. I could see it falling down uh, a wealth distribution, or I could see it falling down a rural versus city distribution, right? Where, you know, if you're out in the middle of, you know, uh, agricultural Gilroy, California, and you're not as in close proximity to people and you're working outdoors and it's very uncomfortable to have a mask, you know, I could see those people wearing a mask less often than the New York or Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles city dwellers that are in an apartment stack with, you know, 1,500 people who they don't know. Why do you think it's fallen down political lines? That's what's so weird to me. It is weird. And it's, I, you know, I've had a few conversations with my sister who lives in Orem, Utah. And it's funny because... Don't know I, it, so I'm guessing it's in the middle of nowhere. It's, uh, so it's right by Brigham Young University. Oh, okay. Um, but it's small. By the way, sister still Mormon? Not Mormon? Not Mormon. Okay. Parents still One Mormon? Of, uh, dad's still Mormon. Mom's passed on. She was Mormon until she passed. Uh, all the five kids are not Mormon. Interesting. We'll, we'll come back to that because I want to okay. know if that's a point of contention with your dad. But finish the story about your sister. So I, I felt like at, at the beginning we were talking past each other a little bit. And what we figured out quickly, thank goodness, was that uh, a lot of... And this was, this was hard for me to take because I view myself as very objective. But where we were talking past each other on coronavirus is we were both responding to our local situation where, for me, 
in Los Angeles, all the absolute nutters were falling on the side of being very concerned about coronavirus. And where she lives, all the crazy people are like coronavirus doesn't exist. Right. And both groups kind of ignoring the science. Yes. Yes. And, and it also, I think it, uh, it was a wake up call to me too of, of how much am I letting like reactionism to my local environment define my true position. Um, and that's something I thought about a lot. It's not, that's not new. And I see kind of my role among my friends, among maybe people on Facebook. I definitely don't weigh in on everything. I weigh in only if I think I have something to say. And I, my, my favorite example is in high school, uh, Dave Matthews Band. We're just wildly popular. Hate them. I hate them so much. I hated them so much too. But it's because I thought they were overrated. I, I didn't get this at the time, but analyzing it a lot later, if they were nobodies, if, if everybody was like, this is the shittiest band I've ever heard in my life, I would have been like, no, they're actually pretty good. Like they're, they're fairly talented and they're, they're pretty decent musicians and this is somewhat innovative. If everybody was like, this is the worst band I've ever heard, I probably, I, I would have been walking around with a Dave Matthews Band shirt because I, I didn't realize this until a few years ago, but I, I really do see my role as um, not to objectively analyze things, or maybe, maybe that's part of it, but to bring things to where I think they should be. So... Um, if, you know, and I think that's probably the, the best example, like Dave Matthews band, I thought was overrated. So I crapped all over them, but if they were underrated, I probably would have built them up. Is that just, you're naturally a bit of a contrarian. So maybe, but I don't, um, I'm not though. Like I, I think McDonald's is one of the like. They do some of the best breading I've oh, my, ever. My kids are losing it in there. <laughs> McDonald's does some of the best breading, like I think, that exists. What do you mean breading? Like like, like, like their hamburger buns? No, like their chicken nuggets. Okay. Um, I think they make amazing chicken nuggets. I think some of the sauces they make are really great. Uh, I don't know why they discontinued their habanero ranch. It was amazing. <laughs> so like, I'm not, I'm not really a contrarian. Um, I think I can recognize when something is like very popular, but also very good. So like I, I would never crap on the red hot chili peppers. They were immensely popular, sold out stadiums, but I, I think they were like probably properly rated. Things just bother me when they're overrated or underrated. Hmm. Interesting. So where do you think we are? You know, we're recording this in February of 2021 where do you think we're at with the COVID response underrated overrated? You know, I have some very strong opinions about this, but I'd love to get your take on it. Um, so I think, yeah, with, with politics, there's, and probably with everything, but with politics, there's also a third dimension of, I, I think we're probably taking COVID a little too seriously. 
maybe not a ton too seriously, but we're, our responses are all wrong, even if we're taking it seriously. So you can take right. something like, you know, you could take the threat of a home invasion very seriously. And in response, like, you know, go make a bunch of pipe bombs. And you wouldn't be accused of taking, like, the threat of a home invasion not seriously enough. But it's just, it's the wrong response. Um, so I think most of what we've done is the wrong response, even the stuff we have done. And I think even just on the level of taking it too seriously, I think we've taken it far too seriously. Yeah. You know, that's, that's an interesting third rail because I think that's where I fall with most political solutions. And this can be on the right or the left where it's like, yeah, we have a serious problem. You know, you identified one earlier in the environment and uh, income inequality. But two things can be true at the same time. We can have a serious problem and we can argue that the current government response is batshit crazy. You know, like I'm thinking about some of the most recent ones you know, I'll probably get um, kicked off of YouTube for this and people will stop listening, but that's fine. You know, do we have a serious problem of people not understanding transvestites? Well, you could argue it's super serious or not that serious or whatnot, but if you believe that it's a serious problem, that can be true. And it can also be true that maybe if tomorrow I want to identify as a woman and go have a mixed martial arts fight against a woman because I say I'm a woman, that's probably a batshit crazy solution. Like men and women are just built differently. So when I see this, you know, seven foot, 50 year old man playing women's basketball because at 45, he decided to transition and become a woman. Um, I don't care that he did that, but the response of, well, he can now play basketball against six foot three women. That just doesn't seem right. Right. So I, I think this third rail, and I'm, I'm sure I could find fi- plenty of uh, examples of Republicans doing no, this as well. I mean, S- Senator Elizabeth Warren, what did she say? Uh, black trans women are the backbone of this country? Like, Clearly. I have no issue with black trans women. They're, they're probably great or not great on an individual level. Like, that's, that's how I would look at them. If I met a black trans woman, I would decide after talking to them whether I thought they were awful or whether they were great or whether they are you know anywhere in between but to say yeah that they're the backbone of this country that's i don't know of any you know 0.02 percent of the population that is the backbone of this country right right yeah so i think i think this idea this is this is probably where people get most visceral in their arguments, right? Because they know there's a big problem. There is a big problem with the environment and the amount of plastic in the ocean and the amount of, well, let's just go with the plastic in the ocean. There's a massive, massive problem with plastic in the ocean. One of the charities, I do, or it's not, they're not even a charity, they're a for-profit because they think they can do more good as a for-profit than a charity, for ocean, uh, the number four and then ocean. Uh, they're an amazing entity. They're a for-profit that pay that they sell little trinkets and bracelets and then you use that to finance taking plastic out of the ocean and you know the most egregious plastic uh polluters are mostly in undeveloped countries what we formerly call third world countries yeah so they're trying to like like the mekong delta is where like yeah like more than half of it comes from exactly and so they're trying to solve that problem um so this there is a big problem but 
making the number one political priority in California pre-COVID ending plastic straws, two things can be true. Plastic in the ocean is a big problem. Changing plastic straws, real low-lying stupidity, you know? And I'm just like, I'm like, I, I think that's where so many people get frustrated with politics where it's like, yeah, I know there's a problem, but the way you're going about solving it is just asinine. And I don't get it. Well, you, you, I, I think you do get it though, because you mentioned reading Thomas Sowell, and he is very good at explaining trade-offs. And I think the the problem is people just don't think in terms of trade-offs, and so they think, you know, I'll send a hundred dollars, and it'll do a little bit of good. But you're Missing out on, un- unless you're doing the greatest amount of good for that $100, you're, you're missing out on a lot more. And so I, I think like when we think of foreign aid, when we think of all of these things, okay, we're, we're giving, you know, a few billion in foreign aid to Pakistan. Um, I think it's rare. People usually say Pakistan is a, they hide terrorists. They're not really our friends. We shouldn't give them aid. Or people say, you know, it's good that we're giving them aid. I, I feel like on both sides, very rarely do they ever say, like, how can we get the most for our dollar? In, if, if we're going to try to help people around the world, if, you know, if we're not just going to limit ourselves to the United States, to our own people, I... I'd at least hope that we'd worry about how we get the most bang for our buck. Right. But we don't. It's, it's an argument over, like, they deserve it or they don't deserve it. It's, it's never an argument of, of how much good can we do with a dollar. I, I, I want to write a book one day called, like, The Amazon Generation or something. And I, I want to know, poke some holes in this thought process for me because it's something I've thought through but I haven't really talked about with a lot of intelligent people. Um, this idea of not being able to evaluate trade-offs or worse yet, not even realize that there's a conversation to be had about trade-offs. You know, I always go back to the area I know the best, which is debt financing because of mortgages. I've been thinking a lot, a combination of kind of endless cheap credit. So people don't really have to make trade-offs. You know, the house that I'm sitting in, I could not have afforded this house if I had to pay cash. They have to make trade-offs, but they don't realize they're making trade-offs. Right. Because those trade-offs are so far in the future. So far in the future. So, So there's this unlimited kind of very cheap debt cycle. And then you combine that with the Amazon generation where there's very few things that I can't click and get delivered tomorrow to my front door. So it's like, it almost feels like there's no trade-off because there's endless cheap credit and then there's product service on demand, 24 hours overnight shipping. So I feel like we're almost being conditioned in society and especially in America to never even have to think about the idea of trade-offs. And I've been thinking through this, like maybe this is the root of some of our problems is that like, you know, going back to Thomas Sowell or just basic economic theory, most people don't even understand that economics is about a system of trade-offs and, and scarcity because most Americans have never lived in scarcity. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true, except for most Americans have lived in scarcity. They just don't recognize what's scarce. And so you could imagine a Star Trek world where you have a replicator where you can make whatever you want. And maybe that's going to be our reality someday. Um, maybe maybe the, the you know endless cheap credit doesn't even matter because 
have become so efficient creating goods that you can just get goods on demand all the time and it doesn't even, you don't have to trade anything off for it. But um, I, I think you're right that we've been conditioned to not recognize these trade-offs. And I think the most insidious place where it manifests is in time. So we don't recognize these trade-offs because of all this cheap credit, but, but there's a, a much more important area where that comes into our own lives, and that's how are we spending our very finite time. Our time alive is an extremely finite resource. And what are we doing with it? I, I, I think that's, that's a question I don't know if people are afraid to ask themselves or if they've just been conditioned, like you said, to... to not view trade-offs, but and, and why do you think that matters? Like, because you know, right now I could probably feel guilty about binge watching WandaVision today on Disney Plus instead of being more productive with my time. Why does thinking through the trade-off of time? Why why does that matter? Well, I don't think it necessarily um, leads you to a conclusion that you shouldn't have binge watched and you should have instead have been productive. I think it just leads you to evaluate like what, what's your hierarchy of values and what are you spending the appropriate amount of time on the things that you actually value most or are you, or are you just kind of taking the path of least resistance with time? Um, you know, I, I'll damn myself a little bit here. Yesterday I had a friend call me old military buddy uh, he and his wife called me and asked if I wanted in June to go hike Mount Kilimanjaro with them. I, I gave them a 20% chance, even though I can't, I, it's really hard for me to imagine um, regretting saying yes to that. But the path of least resistance is definitely to say no. And it's, you know, I got to work or that would require, you know, obviously that's going to cost some money. So that's money I can't spend in other places. There's that trade-off. But I think we very rarely look at ourselves from, from a very holistic standpoint and say, you know, what, what would future me value? What would, where, where actually are my values? What, should I be spending my time on? And hey, if you're spending time with family, binge watching something, or if something is like just an incredible show, I like I've watched The Wire three times, and I would never be like, oh, I wish I'd spent less time watching The Wire, even though that's a ton of hours. But I I feel like the lessons I learned from it, the uh, the level of art, um. The being able to create, I mean, I think The Wire is just, it's a, it's a Greek tragedy in five acts. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of television I think was ever created. And, you know, it, and it, it's so innovative in the way that, you know, I think it's a Greek tragedy, but it like casts the city of Baltimore as the tragic hero. It's hero that you keep rooting for. But, and, and so things like art, it's hard to define. You're not going to, you're not going to find art in your like you know, spreadsheet of productivity, but I don't think that was wasted time. So 
I think it's more comp- complicated. I don't think there's a formula you can use, but I think it's it's incumbent on all of us if we want to maximize our our happiness, our human flourishing, and and our time here on this earth to figure out and decide what are the best uses of our time because the it's a super finite resource and everything you do is a trade-off. Yeah. So let me, are, are you the type of person that values being out in nature, you know, um, ascending mountains? Like is, is Kilimanjaro something that Robbie values? So I think a new experience in a new continent and, um, maintaining a friendship that's very important to me, but I don't have very many opportunities to maintain uh, because we live in, in different states, uh, an old military buddy. And I think all of that is, I, you know, I don't have any, not pretending Mount Kilimanjaro is hard. Like it's the highest mountain in Africa, but you have to get porters. Uh, my first friend I knew who hiked it gained weight on the journey because they carry everything for you and they make you lavish breakfasts and lunches and dinners. And, uh, and so it wouldn't be some like, you know, conquering something within myself, but no, I do love nature. Just, just, I think in and of itself is a great thing. And it's great to be, to separate yourself from hive a little bit and from the, the, buzz and the productivity of everything and to just take in something different and have a break. I think it's a good use of time. So then why only the 20%? Yes. I'm, I'm interested in this because I, I, I well, cause I'm sh- a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the honesty because just in the short 90 minutes we've, uh, we've spent together, I'm like, Oh, this is a pretty like cerebral reflective guy. And for you to sell yourself out there and be like, yeah. And even, I don't know if I'm going to do it. No, I'm, I'm reflective, but I'm, I'm, I try to be super honest about my faults and like, and and that's one of them. I will, as much as I think taking the path of least resistance is not necessarily the right way to go. Sometimes it is, but, um, evaluating it and then deciding I, it's the path of least resistance. It's easy. Yeah. And I, you know, I do it, I do it on a regular basis. Yeah. Do you have kids by chance? I don't. Okay, so um, I've got three kids, and um, I'm part of this group called Front Row Dads, and their whole mission is to get men to be reflective and be fathers who happen to be business owners versus business owners who happen to be fathers, and shout out to John Vroman and the Front Row Dads, because that's his whole mission is to get people to be reflective and be like, hey, when you're on your deathbed, you're going to be pissed if you always took the path of least resistance and just did the spreadsheets versus quality time building Legos with the kids. And it's hard because he really shines a flashlight on the fact that as spoiled Americans who can sit here and watch WandaVision for, you know, five hours, it's easier to do that than be engaged with my five-year-old and build Legos, which I fucking hate doing. And I knew when we started off on the, you know, Star Wars Lego today. I knew he was going to be checked out in three minutes, but I also knew my personality was going to be like, I'm going to have to finish this damn thing. And it's interesting because making those trade-offs of time and trying to be authentic to the things that we say are important versus the things that we actually show are important 
it's tough, man, because I'm, I'm a hypocrite every day on that, right? I say family is the most important thing, and then I look at my schedule, and I'm like, well, then why did I work 10 hours today? I could have provided for my family working seven hours today. Um, and it's, it's tough, and I think we get in this rut as, you know, especially as Americans, where it's ultra-consumerism and work, 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 and a lot of people's identity, myself included, is tied up in work. It's tough to not be a hypocrite. Well, let me, yeah, let me ask you this question because this has been something, this has been one of my favorite questions to ask friends of mine. Um, with like, let's say the Andrew Yang universal income became a thing. Let's say we got to the point where we had the Star Trek replicators where there's really no reason to have a job if you don't want to have a job. Would, would you be satisfied in life? No. I, I, derive, I derive so much meaning from my work and so much satisfaction from my work. And it's almost 100% an ego thing. Like at this point in my career, I know how to fund loans. I know who I'm helping. There's a little bit of excitement every time I help a first-time buyer get into a home. Um, but I work because it's my ego saying like I'm going to work. So if universal basic income, if they could replace 50% of my income tomorrow and I could live a much more humble lifestyle and we had a 3D printer here that could just print to my heart's content, um, I would not be happy without work. And maybe that's because how I was conditioned from the time I was five years old. And my children, if they grew up in a universal basic income environment, maybe they would have a different opinion. But for me, no, there's no chance. I, yeah, would be, or, I would be suicidal without work. Or maybe it's in your DNA. Maybe, you know, and I think, like, that's, that's one of the reasons, I think, too, these overarching governments don't, they can't address the real human issues because I'm actually the exact opposite of you. And I don't, I don't think that's better, and I don't think it's worse. I just... I just am. If, if somebody was going to say, hey, we'll pay you as much as you make right now to just not work, I'd say great. Absolutely. Like, I You're can, like, do you know how many mountains I could climb and books I could read? Yeah. No, I, I, exactly. I, I mean, and, and this is, you know, a huge tangent, but um, my, <laughs> my dad went to prison a couple of years ago uh, for white-collar crime, and I... I remember my first thought, just, God, the amount of books I could read if I went to prison for a year. Like, somebody is providing my, my three hot meals. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that'll, that I won't like, but just, like, checking out of life and just kind of consuming, uh, consuming ideas for a full year is actually super appealing to me. Yeah. There, now, it's interesting. I, I don't want to go as extreme as it having to be a prison term, but there is something very appealing um, of a sabbatical. It's one of the things, in many ways, I kind of hate the educational version or the educational bureaucracy in America, but one of the things that I do think is fascinating, and I would, I'm very jealous of college professors, is this idea of there's this hierarchy of like, you put in your time teaching, and then you get a, a, a TA or a teacher's assistant or a junior professor to go teach your classes for you so you can do research, 
And then after you've done some heavy lifting of research, you get to take a sabbatical to just think and breathe and learn without any stress of thinking you won't be able to go back to your job. That is very appealing to me. Uh, my wife and I are taking a quasi sabbatical for five weeks in Cabo this year. We're going to rent a house and go down there and I'm going to have the team doing like 90% of the work when I'm gone. Um, and I can't wait to like read books all day, play in the pool with the kids, eat ceviche, drink beer at night, maybe go surfing. That's appealing to me. But the idea of like, oh, you would stop working. There's some, there's something in me that I, I think I would be suicidal or homicidal. And again, I don't begrudge anybody who says like, I would be very comfortable not working. I don't know if I would want to pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, that's, that's really, that's an interesting question. I think I'm going to add that to the repertoire. Well, if you need an emergency uh, podcast guest while on your sabbatical, let me know. Perfect. Fly down to Cabo. You're willing. You're willing to take that bullet and come down to come down to Cabo. Um, no, but we did. Uh, yeah, we I, did get a big enough house so we can have some guests and friends down. And I am going to take a little traveling podcast studio that Chris put together. Shout out to Chris for all the technical stuff that he does. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely be finding some interesting people in Cabo to interview. Yeah, I will Ted Cruz it down there in a second. <laughs> I saw this awesome <laughs> meme, and it was Ted Cruz with a beard in like all this kind of Rastafarian gear. At a, at a turntable, and it was like Ted Cruz killing it on the tables in Tulum. And it, it was so funny. Um, but, you know, eh, that's interesting. What do, you, what do you make about this thing that's going on with Texas right now, right? Because because progressives or Democrats or the more left-leaning media, they're just having a field day with the fact that, like, super independent Texas is suffering. They love it. They, yeah. they, they love it so much that a red state is suffering right now. Whereas I feel like... When Republicans have been presidents in time of national emergency, it was like, oh, can you believe that Bush wasn't down in Louisiana after Katrina within 24 hours? No, I or think Katrina is a great, a great corollary. Um, it's, you know, it's unexpected for a, a hurricane of that force, but not completely out of the realm of possibility, which I think makes it actually like very much in line with what's happened in Texas. And yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that, I think the wrong move is to say, you know what, like people in Louisiana, they know hurricanes happen, like fuck them. Like that's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a bad move. It's a bad, it's a bad way of thinking. Um, you could even maintain that you think that this says something about the need for government or for whatever. Like you can, you can make your FEMA, argument. National Guard, whatever. Yeah, you can make your argument that fits within your political priors. Um, but to just make it a reason to, to abandon all empathy for the people who are going through it, I, th I think, I think that, makes you uh, maybe maybe not a bad person but you're doing the same things a bad person would do right right i i look at it a bit different i guess um i'm okay with somebody saying you know screw them they know hurricanes are coming as long as you're intellectually genuine and you say the same thing when it's texas or when it's california or when it's whoever um 
What I can't, and by the way, I also accept the argument if you're very empathetic and you're like, hey, we need to have FEMA National Guard. There needs to be better response from local politicians, from the federal government. Um, I'm, I'm fine with taking either stance in a intellectually genuine applied to all scenarios. What I hate in our current media, government, political feeling is everybody is so intellectually disingenuous because when it's their party or their team, we'll just use the term team, when it's their team, you know, they're all about it. When it's not their team, it's everybody else's fault or whatnot, you know? So it's like, we're seeing this right now. I can't even remember who the senator was of Louisiana when the shit hit the fan in Katrina because the mass media narrative was it was all the federal government's fault because it was Bush, 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 Bush. Everybody had to hate Bush. And, and now that it's Texas, everybody's talking about Ted Cruz. I haven't seen a single article on like, why hasn't Biden flown down there yet? Or why isn't there a FEMA reaction? Or why hasn't the National Guard been mobilized by the federal government? So it's the intellectual, dis, dis, the disingenuous nature of the intellect that bothers me. Like, It's crazier than that. Okay, go for it. So when I was working on the Hugh Hewitt show when Hurricane Katrina happened. And uh, Mayor Nagan, mayor of New Orleans at the time, we caught something that nobody else caught. And that was, he was having a press conference and he, during Hurricane Katrina, had decided to move his family to Texas because they didn't want to deal with the aftermath of Katrina. I think that's fairly understandable. Totally what's, get it. What's, if you have the means, why not? What's less understandable is the mayor of New Orleans who is in the process of moving to Texas, having a custom ringtone that when his phone accidentally goes off at a press conference, the ringtone is moving on up from the Jeffersons because he's moving out of the city he's the mayor of into a completely different state. And nobody picked up on it. We, we, we caught it. We talked about it on our show. Nobody else talked about it. And that kind of, that level of hypocrisy is just, like, that's where it, it becomes insane to me and where, where I can't even, I, I try to ascribe good faith where I can, but, like, I just, I can't ascribe any sort of good faith yeah. In those kinds of situations. Yeah. It's like for the same reason that I'm talking about this, having been intellectually genuine, for that same reason, I understood like the Bernie bros and the Yang gang. Because it's like Bernie Sanders, love him, hate him, disagree with him, which I think I disagree with him on almost every policy. At least you can look at the guy and been like, oh, he's been intellectually congruent for 30 years. Like he believes what he believes. He believes this is the best direction for the country and politics and taxation. And it's like, all right, well, I venomously disagree with almost everything that you're saying, but um, it, at least you're honest. You know, it, at least this is who you are versus you look at like a Bill Clinton or a Trump you just get the feeling that they're Weasley and they're saying whatever the polls are telling them to say that day. And there's no, I don't know, 
intellectual congruency. I keep coming back to this weird intellectual word, but I, I, I just, I, I feel like that's so ugly. And I feel like we just get it from the press nonstop right now. Well, and it seems like the only presidents I can think of who weren't that way are presidents from before I was old enough to to be paying attention to politics. And so maybe they were that way too. Right. Right. I just don't remember it. Yeah. I, like I think Reagan and Carter both had their ideologies and were fairly consistent, but like I'm probably wrong on that. Right. They were probably the same way probably the same. as H.W. Bush and Clinton and George W. Bush and, and Obama. I, I, there's been, there's been very little, I think of, of, people in that executive office who actually, you know, hold the line in any sort of, uh, ideological way who, um, who stick to principles or who don't base what they're doing on triangulation, as Bill Clinton put it, of, of, you know, assessing the, the different trends of the moment and trying to, you know, figure out a policy based on that. And I, yeah. and I'm not even saying that's wrong. I mean, yeah, I get it. it's trade-offs, right? It's trade-offs, the representatives of the people. Like there's, there's plenty of reasons you could say where that's the correct way to govern, but I, I, I don't know that I like it. So you used one of my favorite words, which is representatives. And, and I think I could be wrong. I think this might be where a little bit of nostalgia for like previous presidents before our times were maybe a little bit more, um, intellectually honest, towed their principles. I do feel, and I'm to- I'm stealing this completely from Tyler Ballard, who we uh, interviewed previously on the show. He couldn't quite pinpoint when. Maybe it was the 70s. Maybe it was the 80s. Maybe it was the 90s. He he verbalizes to me. I'm like a light bulb went off in my head. He's like somewhere in the last 40 to 50 years, politicians have switched from being our representatives to our trustees. And he said, you know, instead of, you know, Mike Garcia, who I don't know personally, so I'm not going to shit on him, but he, he's, our, he's our local um, congressman from the Santa Clarita Valley up to Palmdale. You know, instead of him going to his 700,000 constituents and talking to as many of them as possible and saying, okay, now I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. and represent you. The modern politician is like, no, no, I'm your trustee. I'm going to tell you what's best for you. And, and I feel like that's the direction that we've gone in both parties in both the Senate, the, uh, the House of Representatives, and at the presidency level, they're almost like, well, I have my ideas, and for whatever reason, either I'm a very successful businessman or just through the nature of I got elected to president, um, I'm going to be your trustee, and I'm going to tell you what's best for you instead of being your representative. And I think that's when I get the feeling of like government and politicians being gross and like I hate them all, throw them all out, it's because they've taken on this trustee role instead of a representative role. Yeah, no, so I'm going to... I'm going to push back on that a little bit because of my whole, you know, Dave Matthews thing that I explained earlier, where I think, so politicians as, as trustees versus just representatives, um, like, why do we have politicians? Why don't we just have direct democracy? Yeah, I mean, if you're asking me, I got some ideas, but go for it. What what do you think? Well, I I mean, I think the reason is that you you are entrusting someone to know more, to spend more of their time. It's saying, you know what, I got to be a productive citizen, so I'm going to outsource these political decisions to a representative. 
That representative shouldn't just be following whatever, like the populist mob mentality or or issue du jour is. They they should actually be acting on on higher principles. And I I think ideally what they would do is they would say, you know what, like my decisions are based on what my constituents would agree with given a long enough time series. Given all the facts. Given all the facts and given like we're not just living in the moment. Um, but what what did my constituents actually vote? Why why did they vote for me? What are their values and what is the best expression of those values? Uh not not just like what riled them up today, but you know, what do they what do they want in the long term and what's the best way of getting there? Uh, so I, I think that's the best steel man I can come up with for why politicians would act differently than what their constituents want in the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting take. Um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I always come back to the, I can't remember which presidential election it was. It was probably the midterm when Obama was up for re-election and Ron Paul ran and there was, you know, a panel of 10 or 11 Republican, um, you know, presidential hopefuls. And they were arguing about the, the affordable health care bill. And at some point, you know, they're all going back and forth. And they're trying to get in their 30-second soundbite. And they're trying to, you know, rile up the base and say as much negative stuff as Obama as possible. And then Ron Paul finally raised his hand. And he was like, would anybody like to hear from the only physician on the stage? <laughs> and it's like, yes, yes, I would. I would like to hear from the only doctor on the stage if we're talking about medical policy. And I, I agree with you. I would love for that the way to be where we're electing people who are know, smarter than Scott, more informed than Scott, have time to read the issues. I just don't know if they're doing that anymore because it just they're seems not. to be this endless cycle of campaigning and raising money and polling the audience. Yeah. It's just gross. No, no, no. You're right that they're not. I just don't know that the uh, trustee versus representative distinction um, is the actual issue. I, I think I would actually prefer it if we're going to have a representative democracy to for it to be more of a, a trustee type relationship because otherwise why am i not just voting on everything like why do i have a representative if they're not going to disagree with me sometimes based on you know their their superior knowledge that they they should have based on this being their job that they they learn all the facts they you know they they to the best of their ability you know factor in all of the inputs before making any sort of decision um if if we're just going to have representatives that represent what their constituents want in the moment then i think it's why do we even have representatives why don't we just do direct ballot initiatives for everything Interesting. Interesting. What What are some things right now that are politically popular, unpopular? They're They're just kind of in the social zeitgeist. That's on on your radar. So the whole like quote fight for fifteen, oh, um, the minimum wage, the minimum wage, which uh, I don't know. After the second opinion, uh, the second impeachment, are they allowed to say fight for fifteen? Or is that an incitement <laughs> to violence? 
Um, but either, either way, I think it's, it's just a, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous on, on just so many different levels. I'd say the very first level is on a federalism level where $15 in Mississippi is not the same as $15 in San Francisco. It's just not. And it's, and it's stupid to pretend that we're a country where like there should be one minimum wage. And I'm sure that advocates of the $15 minimum wage would say, well, no, we're just, you know, we're just defining a basement wage where, you know, San Francisco is free to make their own minimum wage $700 an hour. Um, but the, the problem, <laughs> the problem there is that, you know, I mean, they're going off of a bunch of different things. They're going off of what they call a living wage, which uh, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me to be the, the wage that it would be for like a normal person to have an apartment on their own and be able to deal with all of the expenses of life on their own. But that's not, that just seems crazy to me too. Like if you're making minimum wage, get a roommate. You know, I, I, I'm close to 40. I've had roommates for most of my life. I mean, I, I, I think probably the entirety of the time I have not had roommates is maybe it's less than two years, maybe less than a year. And I don't think that's, a horrible thing that's not that's not you know um that's not like removing my humanity or or anything like that that i have needed to get roommates it, it, it's just it's it's kind of it's a silly concept to me that somebody just leaving high school who maybe wants to work at el pollo loco needs to be earning the amount of money that they can get a one bedroom apartment and you know start you know a, a Charles Schwab account like that's just that's not what minimum wage is for i disagree with it in concept entirely but but people in that position don't need to be making what progressives would define as a living wage yeah, I, I looked up these numbers when this fight came back around because I, I thought I knew the answer to this question. Turns out I did, but I wanted to look it up to verify the percentage of, well, first of all, the, the workforce participation in America, depending on which stat you read, is somewhere around 50%. So maybe maybe 50% of all living Americans are of age to work and are working and not yet retired. So maybe 50%. Of that 50%, 3% of Americans working make a minimum wage. So really we're talking about one and a half percent of the U.S. populace are actually in a job making a minimum wage. And about two thirds of those are part-time workers, high school workers. I was about to know. say, what's that age cohort? Yeah, it, the, the age cohort is very young or inexperienced, right? So it's like you really have maybe half of the percent of the U.S. population being the poster child that Democrats like to present of like, oh, the lady who's a single mom and she needs to have at least a living wage to be able to afford the apartment and take care of her kids and whatnot. It's like less than half a percent of the U.S. population or somewhere, give or take. And so if you just think of it on a population basis, this is a really interesting argument for politicians to be having because it's really not affecting that many voters. 
but somehow it's become the ultimate virtue signal that I've got, you know, friends of mine who literally make a zero minimum wage, they're realtors. So they make zero dollars unless they close a deal. And somehow they're just so emotionally tied to this minimum wage issue. I don't understand where the where the virtue or where the, you know, where, where the feeling is that this is just such a large group of wronged people. So do you have any thought process on that on why people that are currently making a zero minimum wage and are doing very well from themselves have this ideal of like, there's so many people out there that are just downtrodden that we have to raise this. I mean, it's just, the whole thing just seems silly to me, not even politically or political, just silly. Yeah. I think it's so, I think that goes back to the same thing as the black trans women are the backbone of America. I, I, it's easy to find some small, discreet group that is that that we would maybe in a utopia want to have it better than they have it. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, to focus on it as the the center of some sort of political campaign or issue is, is just silliness. And I wish that people would consider trade-offs more because if they did, then they would understand that for every second that they spend demanding people pay attention to $15 minimum wage, they are trading that for a second that those people might be spending on another more important issue or more effective issue. And I think just, I mean, I think the, the minimum wage is counterintuitive anyway to begin with, but even if you thought that it was, the, if you thought that it had um, the effect that I think supporters of it think it has, even if, even if you accepted that premise, uh, that it deserved that sort of attention seems crazy to me. So uh, tell me why, because I have some opinions on this, no big surprise. Tell me why you feel the counterintuitive nature of minimum wage, like what doesn't work about it or why, why do you not believe in it fundamentally? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I grew up here in, in California listening to Loveline and Adam Carolla, and he actually uh, shaped my thinking on this a little bit. And especially when he made his book, Not Taco Bell Material, that was about how he, he interviewed with Taco Bell and they, they were like, well, we don't think you're Taco Bell material. And so they didn't hire him. And he doesn't even blame them because he said when he finally did go get a fast food job, I don't remember who it was with, but that he, you know, he didn't know. He, he had to be taught that instead of, you know, pushing a mop, you, you drag a mop. You know, it's not like that you treat a mop differently than you do a broom and didn't understand showing up on time. Didn't understand. Like, there's, there's all of these basic, basic skills that people need to learn. And I think it's better that they, that they're able to learn those with employers who can afford to hire them. So what you do when you say, we're going to make the minimum wage $15 an hour is you all of a sudden say to employers only hire people whose labor is worth $15 an hour. Otherwise don't hire. And that prevents people from being able to learn skills that move them up the ladder. And so, and, and if you want to take that analogy of a ladder, what the minimum wage does is it knocks out 
the lowest rungs of the ladder. So all of a sudden, instead of somebody being able to step onto that bottom rung at $8 an hour and then learn and then step to the next step at $9 an hour, $10 an hour and keep going up, all of a sudden you are saying, you know what? Only people who can produce value that's fifteen worth $15 an hour, anybody under that, we can't hire in the first place. They're not going to learn. They, they, they don't, we can't afford to invest in them while they learn. So they just don't get a job. And, you know, going back to progressives, this is something progressives in the 1930s understood very, very clearly. And the earliest arguments for the minimum wage were very open about their purpose. You know, these were people who were very into eugenics. They very racist policy. Very racist. They just thought, and, and I mean, Racist is one part of it, but also like they thought too, there were, you know, there's white people who had bad genes, but that what we wanted to do was we wanted to select for better genes. And they were very honest that the minimum wage was a policy that would freeze people out of the market so that they would not be able to afford a family. They wouldn't be able to afford to reproduce. So what they're saying is anybody who can, we're going to create this threshold Anybody who can't immediately create value greater than this threshold doesn't deserve to be hired, and they shouldn't be hired. And so they shouldn't be able to select a mate. Like, nobody's going to want to marry them. Nobody's going to want to have kids with them. If they have kids, they won't survive anyway. And that way, what we can do is we can you know, just kind of like, instead of, you know, a, a lot of the progressives were for forced sterilization. But this was a minimum wage was a softer version of that. It was saying, we don't even need to sterilize everybody. We'll just put in this minimum wage and then all the undesirables, they won't be able to afford to have families. So, because they won't get hired. And what this will do is this will ensure that, you know, white people with good genes are the people who get the jobs and that they can't be undercut by some lesser black person who is saying, you know what? I don't need, I don't need $15 an hour. I'll work for $8 an hour. I'll work my way up from there. I'll prove my value to you. And you'll want to keep me on and increase that wage. They were saying, we don't want those people to have a chance. And it's funny that the, the argument has changed now among progressives. Progressives are now saying, that this is about human dignity. But the economic analysis hasn't really changed. That what it does is it locks undesirable, quote, undesirable people out of employment. You know, and what really bothers me is anybody who's never either run a business or been a manager of a business or looked at the P&L of a business they don't even understand this because when you have a $15 minimum wage and then you add payroll tax and effectively what has become government required benefits, most jobs in America have benefits now of some, some level. You know, when I look at my P&L for my employees, if they're making $15 an hour, they're effectively costing me $30 an hour on the P&L. And then of course, the reasons for business to exist is a profit margin. 
So if I can't squeeze out, you know, 20%, 30%, 100% return on investment on that employee, I'll just do it myself. So if you factor in payroll tax, overhead, plus a margin of profit, a $15 an hour employee is really costing the business owner, call it 30, 35, 40, $45 an hour. And then I like to think of the restaurant example, you know, here in LA, the people that are usually the lowest paid individual at the restaurant level is the hostess because, you know, they're not, they, maybe they're not old enough yet to serve alcohol, so they can't be a waitress. So the hostess makes $10 an hour currently or $12 an hour, whatever the, the California minimum wage is. That means the waitress makes $12 an hour plus tip, which means the shift manager makes $16 and the, the manager makes $22 and the short order cook who can, at Cheesecake Factory, recall 200 recipes from memory because Cheesecake Factory is an absurd menu. You know, they're making $25 an hour. Well, the problem is if you take minimum wage for the hostess to 15, now the waitress expects to make 15 plus tips and the manager expects to make, instead of 22, 24. And the, you know, short order cook expects to make 28 instead of 25. And it's just this insane wage inflation across the, across the board, which at the end of the day, look, if I go to Cheesecake Factory and my Oreo cheesecake is 13 bucks instead of nine bucks, that's not going to stop me from eating the Oreo cheesecake. But for the person making minimum wage, that means they can no longer eat out or, prov or provide for themselves with the lower cost goods because lower cost goods won't exist. I don't know why there's this fallacy of like, well, we'll just make Walmart pay $25 an hour to everybody and then society will be a better place. Walmart's not going to decide, ah, you know what? Ah, shucks. We got to pay our employees more. So we're just going to cut out more out of our profit. No cost of goods just get more expensive. And again, I don't give a shit if milk is $7 a gallon or $17 a gallon instead of five, because I can afford that. The person making minimum wage cares that, 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 you know, milk is seven bucks a gallon instead of five. And I just, I don't understand why I, I feel stupid when I can't help other people see this side of the argument. It makes me feel dumb that I can't articulate it well enough to make people understand that minimum wage going up is a bad idea. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I feel that way about a lot of subjects and the way that, you know, the, the, really the only way that I ever overcome that is with more of a Socratic method. And that's really, it, it's funny, you talked about... Explain that for nobody, so for people that the, didn't take speech and debate. Yeah, the Socratic method, and I didn't take speech and debate either. Um, so if you didn't, you can, you can just Wikipedia all of this. Like, the government education is useless. You have everything in your pocket, so... Uh, the Socratic method is, is basically the oversimplified version. It's just asking questions and it's getting people to, um, and I would say even beyond the Socratic method, you just, if I start asking people, how does that work? I find very quickly that, um, that they become much less dogmatic about their positions. So if somebody is, is saying we need $15 minimum wage, uh, think of the questions that you can ask. Don't, don't, you know, preach to them, but, but say, okay, well, how does, how does this work for people who their, their labor isn't worth $15 an hour? Like, and, and that's not necessarily saying anything bad about them, but maybe they're a 17 year old. They, they haven't learned things that would make their labor more valuable how do they get on that track um 
And I think when you, you force people to explain the ins and outs of their position, it's way more effective. And, and you don't even have to have as good of a command of your own positions because they'll just, people, people normally implode when they have to go more than one or two layers deep in their political analysis. But the sad thing is, in our current political analysis, once somebody gets stumped, they just call you a racist or a fascist, and that's the end of the argument. Um, it's funny, you said something earlier about like uh, DMing somebody who, uh, where, where there was some sort of disagreement. And I think, I think you're right. That is the response most of the time when you're just talking to somebody on a public Facebook thread. And people don't want to be embarrassed. But the, what I'm saying is more of a strategy for, for talking to somebody face-to-face or if you DM them. And uh, I've I found my Facebook strategy has basically been that I will take somebody to task on Facebook if I think they would never change their mind no matter what. And at that point, my interaction with them is serving the broader audience and letting other people see this interaction play out and hopefully convincing them. But if it's somebody I think that I might have a chance at convincing, you're actually not going to see that discussion because I, I immediately, like you did in that example, I, I, I take it to the DMs. And that's a place where people are much more comfortable saying, Oh, maybe I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, because people do not like to admit their faults, myself included. Yeah. Going back to the hypocrisy thing in, uh, in a public form. Right. And I've, I've really tried, I'm really trying hard more and more frequently to end or at least contribute to a Facebook-type discussion with the term either, that's a good question, I don't know, or... Send me an article and I'll read more, or more on that. Um, I had this standing policy for a long time where if I got into a debate with somebody, I said, "Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do a book swap? You send me a book on the topic that you uh, that you're interested in, and I'll send you a book on the topic that I'm interested in. Let's read it and see what we come up with." And the funny thing is, eighty percent of people will just never respond because they're not willing to be exposed to an opinion, especially a well thought out opinion that they disagree with. 10% of the people will go for it. I'll read the book and they'll never read the book. And about 10% of people read the book. And I've, I've read some fascinating books, some of which are out of print now, like this book, uh, this economics book called Small is Beautiful that really argues against big corporations, big business, big scales of economy. And I'm like, oh, that, that really tested and changed some of my very strongly held beliefs that I believed probably because I heard my dad say it, you know? Um, and it's, I'm desperately trying to do that. I'm still very, very flawed as a person and I get angry and I sometimes just tell people to piss off. It's probably not the best political or uh, debate format to just tell people to fuck off. But um, yeah, the more that I try to say, hey, you know, that's a good point. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Send me something more on that. Um, I'm trying to get to that place. Um, but it's just so frustrating when I feel that people aren't being as genuine. Yeah, and I don't know what to do about the people who aren't being genuine, I do know that um, there have been a few, a, a few really hard-charging progressives 
um, who I'm friends with and they're still progressives after talking with me. But, but one, for example, was, um, doing a lot of this, like basically like all white people are racist kind of stuff. And I actually DM'd him and I, I just said, Hey, like, I'm just curious what you're trying to accomplish here. And he explained to me what he was trying to accomplish. And I, I said, do you think that calling people racist is going to make them more or less uh, open to the arguments that you're making? And, you know, it, it, it took some work. I mean, it was, we had long conversations over many days, but what was really interesting is I noticed the tenor of their posts changed dramatically to where they did start, you know, they were just reposting anything that agreed with their priors that, that they liked that, um, called anybody who voted for Donald Trump a racist, for example. And after we had that conversation, it's not like, not like they did a 180 on their politics, but this guy started posting things that were more thoughtful and more like, hey, in, instead of like, hey, every Donald Trump supporter is a racist, it was more of the, like, hey, people want better lives for their families and that doesn't stop at the border. It was more of like that kind of stuff that can appeal to people who voted for Donald Trump of alienating them um so i don't know i i i've i've absolutely though 100 percent had um far better experiences and successes getting people to shift a little bit when i dm them than when i you know publicly shame them for something that i think is dumb yeah yeah you know it's it's interesting because there are some conversations mention the anybody who voted for Trump as a racist or just I mentioned that just being the go-to rhetoric now there are some inter- some very interesting conversations that I would like to have about race but I feel like you can't you, you there's not even a place to jump off without just being called a racist and and who wants to deal with that so it's like well then the conversations don't get had you know, um, I was having a conversation with one of the realtors I work with, um, one of my favorite people to work with. She happens to be black. Um, and we were having a conversation about why some of her clients who are also black have a harder time getting mortgages than maybe some of her clients who are white. And, you know, I took that very seriously. One, because that's part of my profession. Two, I value this lady and her friendship and her business relationship very deeply. So I want to make sure that I'm never contributing anything that could create or reinforce that stereotype. And so I went back and I looked at, you know, the last five of her borrowers who I happened to know were black and five of her borrowers who I happened to know were white and a bunch of them I had no clue because I just, I very very rarely meet clients in person. So unless they mention that or she mentions it or we do a Zoom conference, I, I would have no idea. Um, and what I noticed is that amongst the black borrowers who at this point in their financial profile of going to buy a house are saying the same things, earning the same kind of money, have the same kind of savings 
as the white borrowers, I, I would not have anecdotally or without the analytics, I would have anecdotally never thought anything different about the two groups. But when I went back and looked at it, and this is a very small sample size, so this is obviously not you know systematic of, the, of, of all lending, I noticed that the black borrowers I were talking to, um, they had a lower credit score because of something that had happened in their past, you know, five, 10 years ago before they got serious about their finances and wanting to become a homeowner. And I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know if it's systematic racism. I don't know if it's a cultural thing. I don't know if there is something in the credit algorithm that negatively affects black people. I don't know. I would like to have that discussion with people that are smarter than me and might be in the know, but I just feel like you can't have that conversation without me being called a racist or somebody coming from it from a disingenuous, like, oh, all financial systems are, are racist. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's true because I want to fund a loan for anybody because it means money in my pocket. I don't care if they're black, white, purple, female, gay, straight. Um, and I, I just, I don't even know how to start bridging that gap or that conversation with the right people to be like, hey, we, we do have a problem if systematically blacks have lower credit scores than Latinos or whites or Asians or whatever the case may be, but how do we fix the root problem without just calling every lender a racist? Because that sure doesn't seem productive to me. And, and I don't even know where, I don't even know where to jump off. You know? Yeah. I think the, I think the answer a lot of people want to say is if there is a, a, a racially disparate outcome, like a credit score, then you want to uh, de-emphasize the credit score. And I, I just think that's, that's like, you know, taking, it's like prescribing aspirin for a brain tumor. Um, you know, you want to get to the root problem. You don't want to just treat some of the symptoms. And I don't know, I, I also don't know what the root issue there would be. I also don't even know that, like, um, you know, going back to Thomas Sowell again, it's the, the weird thing would be for all ethnicities, all races, all backgrounds to be in the exact same position. Um. One thing I remember reading from him, I don't know if this is true anymore, but this is one of his essays from the 90s. And I think it was in his uh, collection of essays called Barbarians at the Gates. But Thomas Sowell talks about um, donut shops in California. It was like, it was something like 85 or 90% of donut shops were owned by Cambodians who are, I think, were less than 1% of the population. Uh, but but somewhere right around there. And what is that? Is that like is that discrimination against non Cambodians in the pastry industry? Like we'd never even think to go there. It would just be oh yeah, like, you know, Cambodians have a lot of donut shops. That I, I I don't I don't understand why that's racist or why that would require some sort of like, you know, congressional hearing to figure out why the donut industry in California is so dominated by Cambodians. Yeah. I, I think the housing is different. I read a, a great book that was very eye opening called um, the color of law. It was uh, referred to me yeah, <coughs> by a friend. Redlining. Yeah. 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 Referred to me, referred to me by a friend of mine, Nick Couchet, who's a, a lender and doing a lot of great work in the black community <coughs> to promote home ownership. That's like, that's his life's goal. 
And man, that book is very eye-opening about how it's very easy to go back to the Jim Crow era laws and be like, well, generally, generationally, if you get locked out of housing, especially in California, from the 50s to the 80s, fuck, dude, your family lost out on hundreds of thousands of dollars of wealth accumulation that then turns into a refinance that allows, you know, the next generation to go to college, which then allows the upward mobility. So it's, it's very eye-opening and something that needs to be understood. I don't claim to have any knowledge about how to address the problem. Um, but I, what I can't figure out is the correlation between that and somebody in 2013 of any particular ethnic group making poor credit decisions. I, I don't know what the through line is. Like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not, you know, I don't have a background in sociology or economics to, to figure out that through line. I think there is a through line, you know, yeah. that if you couldn't buy housing in the 50s and then you didn't have the upward mobility in the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe those people's children in the 90s and the 2000s have a different understanding of finance. So there, there is some through line that I can't see. I just don't know how to talk about it. And even talking about it right now on this podcast is making my stomach queasy because I'm like, I don't want to come across the wrong way as two white guys sitting here that I'm insensitive to it. I just don't, I don't, I don't know how to fix it. Um, right. I, I, so, you know, if somebody doesn't want to read two white guys talking about it, I'd recommend reading Coleman Hughes, who, who talks a lot about black consumption. Uh, he has some really good articles, long essays and articles that go into some of this stuff. Um, but I think there's a lot of through lines. And I, I think that really in, in, you know, everybody's scared to, to talk about these subjects. Um, but I, this is where I lean back on libertarianism is that I, I, I think this is why it's so important to look at people as individuals because, you know, we, we look at people based on their melanin and you get one story. Um, you know, and you can say that, that there's these certain through lines with the black community from redlining, from whatever, but it doesn't explain the other through lines that you have of Nigerian immigrants, Jamaican immigrants, of people who have the same level of, of you know, quote-unquote blackness, who look the same to most non-black Americans. And why is it that, that the Jamaican and, and Nigerian and Kenyan immigrants do so well? You know, I, it's... There, there's something that needs to be explored there, and I don't pretend like I have all the answers, and I don't pretend like the answer isn't that uh, people who have been here for many, many generations were subjected to horrible racism and to uh, an obliteration of their culture. Um, because I think I think those kind of things are super important. I mean, what you have is... and. I don't know that this is the answer, but maybe it is. You have people from Jamaica and Nigeria who are coming over here with an intact culture that's developed over thousands and thousands of years. And you look at that through the evolutionary lens and, and you know, those, those people are coming over here with that certain evolutionary skill set where had, I think both with blacks and with native Americans here, you had an intentional obliteration of their culture. 
Which is like the most violent thing you can do to somebody. Yeah. The most violent thing you can do to, to somebody and also to their future generations where, where you're just, I mean, you know, you think of how long it takes for, um, for evolution to build up into something that is fit for its environment. And what you're doing, what, you, what, what we did here with blacks who came from a bunch of different areas of Africa with different cultures, different tribes, uh, different everything. And we intentionally obliterated that. We did the same thing with the Native Americans. You know, we threw them all together, not even based on tribe, uh, uh, somewhat, but mostly just throwing them onto reservations, willy-nilly combining tribes, and also putting a huge emphasis on uh, kind of a detribalization where we you know, gave a lot of incentives for Native Americans to abandon their heritage and to instead adopt a, a, a more Anglo-Saxon heritage. And when there's that level of intentional obliteration of culture, I don't think it's surprising that there's going to be some negative effects of that. So coming full circle to make sure that we don't do this to future cultures, future ethnicities, because I think we always think, I think all humans think wherever they're at in time, you know, whether you mentioned it's the Trotskys in, in Russia, whether it's us now, everybody always thinks they're at the pinnacle of society. And well, we would never, we would never, we would never perpetrate those atrocities because those are in the past. We're so evolved now to make sure that we never do something like that again, kind of coming full circle. Why do you think libertarianism, small L, why do you think that solves that problem? I think it, so I don't know that I would ever consider libertarianism to solve anything is the first caveat I would make. Um, We're talking about trade-offs again, and I think it's the best system we can possibly have. I don't, I don't pretend that it will solve issues, but it will give the best results compared to any other system that we've imagined. And the reason I think that that's the case is because it, looks at people as individuals. So um, I, I think when you, take, uh, when you take characteristics of people that are uh, unchangeable, so immutable characteristics like gender, like race, uh, and make that into what defines a person, I think it's super, super limiting. I understand the uh, desire to do that. I understand that if you say, you know what, women have been oppressed for, uh, I don't know, all of human history, and blacks have been oppressed for... All of U.S. history. All of U.S. history, yeah. I mean, I, you know, in, in serious ways regarding the U.S., you know, at least for 400 or so years, 500 years, um, I think when you look at it that way, it locks people into these group identities. And so you can take something that has really good intentions like uh, affirmative action. And then who become the major beneficiaries of that? Uh, what we've seen is that it's the, it's, what you're doing is you're saying, we did horrible shit to black people. So now 
we should help make up for that horrible shit. So we'll do affirmative action. And what that ends up doing is it ends up saying, okay, um, all you black people who still live in the ghetto come up in like really shitty times. Uh, fuck you. We're going to give some college, college scholarships to these upper middle class black people who already have it made. That ends up being the result for the most of affirmative action. It's that uh, the people that take advantage of it aren't the people that we're picturing when we make the policy. Instead, it's like, you know, if you look at Fresh Prince, it's not, it's not Will while he was living in Philadelphia that gets to go to Berkeley because of affirmative action. It's Carlton, who was the son of a judge. He goes to Berkeley. Will just still gets his ass beat on the basketball courts in West Philadelphia. And I think that because we can identify a group based on melanin that we wronged, that we think that the way forward is to basically give, give privileges based on melanin. And yes, a disproportionate amount of black people are poor. So that means that if instead you focus on poverty, you're also going to help a disproportionate amount of black people. So if you say, do you know what? Like people that make this month or people whose parents make, make this much a year, that's who we're going to give scholarships to. Or if you say people who don't have a parent that's been to college, that's who we're going to give scholarships to. And if you remove race from the equation, I think it has a dual, um, it has a dual benefit of both de-emphasizing race to where we're not thinking as much about race, where we're not saying, you know what, to erase racism, we need to build up more walls around race. It has that benefit. It also has the benefit that uh, that the community that you're targeting is not the sons of judges to go to Berkeley, but it's the kids who have no parents who have ever been to college. And you know what? Some of those are going to be white kids from Appalachia, and I don't think that's a problem. We're, we're going to disproportionately uh, improve the lives of people who come from backgrounds that are difficult. And I, I think... I think that's a much better way forward. And maybe it's not that libertarian that we're, you know, treating people a little bit different, but you know, I'm a, I'm a Burkean libertarian. I'm okay with that. I just yeah. like, I would rather if we're going to have government programs that say, you know what, less privileged people, we should give them more privilege. I'm for doing that in a way that actually makes sense. Yeah. I like that a lot. And maybe, uh, maybe Chris can fact check me on this. Um, on uh, when the economic opportunity zone got uh, got signed into law, I'm pretty sure it was a second term of Obama's presidency because the economic opportunity zone is something I really liked. And and if you know we're giving credit to politicians who I would mostly disagree with, uh, I think this is one thing that came out really positive from the Obama administration is the economic opportunity zone is they basically kind of geo targeted places that are poor they didn't they didn't do it by race they didn't do it by 
you know, favored nation status. They didn't do it by what representative, you know, uh, uh, shilled for Obama the most. It was like, no, we are going to pick the poorest areas and we're going to create these economic opportunity zones where we have huge tax incentive to bring business and infrastructure from the private sector to these areas. So I have a friend that bought like a disgustingly used old like airplane hangar, which he would have never bought unless there was the economic opportunity zone tax credit. And uh, he was able to create, you know, a couple dozen jobs through remanufacturing it into storage units. Now he has a full-time local person from the local area, you know, living on site to manage the storage units. People have low cost storage, which we could probably argue that that might be a bad thing because of the runaway consumerism in America that we actually need storage outside of our house for all of our shit. But that's a, it's probably a different conversation. But, you know, he invested in that area outside of his normal business practices because it made sense thanks to the tax credits. And I think right along with your idea of like, no, let's really help the people that are in the poorest areas that are the most at need, regardless of how much melatonin they have in their skin. That's something that I think is is one of the shining policy lights of government when we can actually, instead of holding a gun to your head to take your money, we'll let you keep a little bit more of your money, which that's all counterintuitive to kind of what I believe in general. But it's the lesser of two evils where like, hey, at least we're getting infrastructure and investment and business into these places that are underserved, which tend to be more minority um, prominent areas. So, um, you know, I I think that was a great policy. Kind of goes against a lot of the other stuff I believe, but it's like, if this is the system we're working in, at least we can do some good. Right, right. And so, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, reparations is something I wouldn't, I, I probably wouldn't be for. But uh, I, there's a Hotep Jesus, um, who's an interesting guy. Is this the guy on Twitter who has like a billion followers or something? He probably does, yeah. But um, so Hotep Nation, Hotep Jesus, it's it's a weird, interesting like. I, I I it's one of the movements I've been most interested in, in the past couple of years. But it's um, so Hotep is is like a greeting. Uh, that I think is Egyptian, and it's it's this black movement um, that it was a pejorative term, hoteps, because hotep was like assalamualaikum, basically, but for Egypt, and they started calling these people hotep, and uh, and this guy in particular, he got his name from somebody said to him like, what do you, who do you think you are, hotep Jesus? Yeah, I am hotep Jesus. Um, but he had this interesting idea that if you're going to do reparations, don't just give people money. How about, uh, and this is like, I love this because it works with incentives. It's look, if you can prove that somebody's the descendant of slaves, give them extra tax breaks. Don't, don't give them, don't just like give them a lump sum of money, but like anybody, this is, this is no knock on, on, other people if i suddenly as a mormon because i don't know because governor wade boggs in missouri put out an extermination order for mormons because there was a lot of persecution there if they were all of a sudden like here you get fifty thousand dollars i would go buy a jeep gladiator like i wouldn't do something good with it i would go buy a jeep gladiator because i really want that car um and so I don't have any uh, disrespect for anybody who, if there were reparations that was just a cash sum, would spend it on something frivolous. Um, 
I like his idea because the incentive is that it encourages more production. It's like, hey, here's your reparations. You don't pay taxes for five years. Go produce. Like, I think people would go nuts with production. Like, you would, you would really get a big difference that would last because people would build businesses, because people would figure out how to create that have just consumed. Um, so I think that's, that's an interesting, like I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably against reparations. I'm, I'm open probably against it, but if you're going to do it, this is like all of my views on government. If you're going to do it, at least do it in a way where like the incentives line up in a good way. And I thought that was a really interesting concept of a way to do reparations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always like to hit at least for a moment on the podcast, how people are making their money because um, one of the things that's most fascinating to me in the world, having worked in loans for so long is all the various ways people in LA can earn a living. Um, so we, we touched on it briefly when we started, you do a lot of marketing for law firms. Uh, what is the ecosystem of like, why can't you just go buy your gladiator tomorrow? All cash. What's the, what's the, <laughs> what's the ecosystem of money look like for, uh, for Robbie and your job well, doing I'm, marketing? I'm bad at negotiating. That's probably it. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a true believer. And so my, one of my biggest problems, I think for sure, is I'm, I'm, I would say I'm l almost 100% underpaid at my current job. Every American is underpaid in their job. Just ask them. But, uh, but the reason I would say that is I could get more if I went to a different law firm. Um, I work for a great, great law firm uh, called Sam and Ash. It's in Nevada and in California. And it's a personal injury law firm, but I don't. I'm doing marketing and with them. I don't have to deal with the stigma of ambulance chaser. Like they're, they're actually doing a really good job where they like invest in people, invest in their, uh, invest in their legal cases. Um, because, and, and not to go too much on a tangent here, but with personal injury, you have like a very, there's a one very clear, easy business model. And that's, you bring in as many cases as possible. And then you just go call the insurance company and you say, what are you going to take for this? And you maybe negotiate a tiny bit more. And then you take a percentage of that. You don't do a lot of work on the case. So as long as you're bringing in volume, you know, you're taking 20, 25, 30% of the, of the settlement. If you're not putting anything into that, that's a lot of money. Um, and this company I'm working with, they, they do... They really invest in case. And so what you get is them spending a ton of money to make these cases better, even, even with the cases where they could just settle and, and collect a check. Um, and so because I know their profit margins aren't the same as a more like puppy mill style right. business. Um, I take less money, but yeah. So I'm bad at negotiation. That's the answer to your question because 
I, I probably could be making more doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. Next time you're up for a review, I will come negotiate for you. <laughs> I'll be like, he's not staying here unless he gets a Jeep Gladiator. Um, that, that'd be a great bonus, right? You get like a $40,000 Jeep Gladiator. I think they're more than that. They're pretty, they're pretty yeah. pricey. It's a good looking truck, the, though. The very base model is around 40, but that's not, I wouldn't want a base model. I've already, I already have like a JKU, the previous model, Rubicon, which is the higher trim already got that so yeah i'm gonna get a gladiator i want the sixty thousand. not the i feel like with the beard dollars. and the cowboy hat like you have to drive a jeep or an f-150 it's yeah. like if i if you drove up in a prius i just i think i would look lose all respect for the for the attire <laughs> um yeah are you the are you the outdoorsy mountain man type is that your is that your thing or is this just a is this just a west la oh faux I, hipster look no i'm well so there's some foe to the look uh, the term, the term when I lived in Texas was uh, "all hat, no cattle." <laughs> so I, I do not have any cattle, but um, yeah, I, I, I am outdoorsy. I camp a lot. I shoot a lot. I have a gun dog, bird dog. Um, you have a bird dog. Bird dog. Yeah, it's a, I didn't know any Californians. Well. I didn't know any Southern Californians owned a bird dog. I know a lot of people in Central and Northern California are much closer to Texans than they are to Los Angelinos. But uh, well, so where this bird dog is more uh, an Angelino is he does have his own Instagram. Your dog has an Instagram. He has an Instagram, and it is uh, so he's a wire-haired pointing Griffon, which is a, a semi-rare breed. And so being in Los Angeles, his name is Merv Griffon. <laughs> and that is also his Instagram handle at Merv Griffon, but Merv Griffon for anybody who doesn't know it, like a huge production guy, but he's the guy who made Jeopardy. He made wheel of fortune yeah. and did the theme songs for that. He made before he died. So he sold the rights to Jeopardy, but never the theme song on the theme song alone. He made $80 million and his estate has made, I think, in excess of $120 million yep. on just that like 30 second theme song. I, I, I'll, I'll never forget. Cause my grandmother watched Jeopardy and wheel of fortune every night till the day she died. I will never forget the closing trailer is the little gold Griffin yeah. um, of uh, that was his, like his company logo. And it would be presented by Merv Griffin or Griffon or however. Yeah. yeah. No, Merv Griffin, Merv Griffin is, yeah. is the name. Yeah. Griffon is the name of the, so it's the, that's where of your dog I see there. Yeah. I love it. Merv Griffon. Okay, maybe you'll get like three new Instagram followers uh, for your dog thanks oh. to our podcast. I'm very excited to get it to, you know, 453. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, man, um, what did we forget to talk about tonight? What's what's something that's been top of your mind? Like, we had no plan when you came in here. I just knew we that we were We had zero plan. Do you know what? Actually, if we want to, if you want to give me that, I would say Yemen. Oh, tell me, tell me what you're thinking about Yemen. So we didn't even get. We're gonna have to come. We're gonna have to come, have you back to talk would, about your JSOC time in the military. Yeah. Like, um, but but yeah, tell me, tell I'd, me what's on your mind about Yemen. I'd love to come back. Um, but what's always on my mind in Yemen is it's one of the biggest humanitarian crises in in modern history, and um, so it's on the Arabian Peninsula, you know, south of Saudi Arabia, and. It is just, you know, it, it, it takes the brunt, basically, of, like, every conflict we've had in the past 15 years. And it's, I think it's more than, like, 90% of the kids there are malnutrition. 
are suffering from malnutrition. Um, and it's one of the, the, you know, I don't, I don't give a lot of credit to presidents. I, I, I gave Trump his, his credit where credit was due. I'll give Biden his credit where credit is due that he is very seriously talking about pulling back from Yemen. So this is a conflict we've been involved in for more than five years, even though nobody knows about it, nobody cares about it. And uh, it's, I think part of the reason nobody cares about it is because it's complicated. Right. The There's, only thing I know about Yemen is when they blew up the naval ship. Yeah. In the port. Oh, in the coal, the coal, the USS coal. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. So Yemen now has been, so basically when we had the Arab Spring, you know, that spread from Tunisia and Egypt around a lot of the Arab world. And, and that included was Yemen, uh, which, you know, their, their president was ousted. Um, a new leader was brought in, but it was kind of, kind of like the, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. And the Yemeni people were not having that. So, um, it's turned into a big conflict, but it's, it's, the problem is it's turned into a big proxy conflict. So, you know, most people kind of know the Sunni-Shia divide. Um, and what has happened there is it's turned into a proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And we, because Obama uh, did the deal with Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, Saudi Arabia was very upset and kind of our... Our way of apologizing to Saudi Arabia was saying, hey, we'll support you in Yemen. And uh, so we, France, the UK, we all give air support in Yemen, give intelligence support in Yemen. And what you just have is this already like poorest country in, in the world being constantly bombed into more and more and more poverty in a proxy war between Saudi Arabia, which is Sunni, and Iran, Shia. Um, Trump, one of my big hopes for Trump, with all of his talk about pulling back from conflicts that didn't make any sense for us, was that we would be getting out of Yemen. Uh, especially because, you know, he, he seemed to want to stick his finger in the eye of anything Obama, and including the Iran nuclear deal, and the Iran nuclear deal was the reason we were in Yemen in the first place, but Trump did nothing to, uh, to, to pull us back from that. And Biden has said that he's going to. Um, so that's, you know, not a lot of kudos I can give to Biden, but I will give him huge, huge kudos there. Um, and it's one of the conflicts that I think is, should be forefront in the minds of Americans because it's something that, that we've been fueling uh, for the past five years. Yeah, and, and obviously I think the reason most Americans want to know about it is because we don't have any troops on the ground there, theoretically. Um, and do you think if we pull back from that, it will cut off the free pass from us to Saudi Arabia to continue to be part of that conflict? Or do you think it could escalate things? Because I, I always... I always feel like America, a lot of times we get involved in stuff because we're kind of holding back the leash on a more violent dog. Yeah. Um, which is a weird way to look at it. 
But well, it's, yeah, I think that's true in a lot of situations. In Yemen, I don't, I don't think it is. There's so many players, and none of them are good. I mean, you have, um, you have Al Qaeda there. You have ISIS there. They're both fighting each other, and they're just opportunists in a war between you know uh, the the Houthis who are in. Northern Yemen, which is like a misnomer. They called northern and southern Yemen, but it's really western and eastern Yemen. And there, there, and there's all these complications where you have, you know, eight different actors. You have misleading geographical directions. You know, you have like everything that would make an American just be like, ah, oh, this is too complicated for yeah, me whatever. to pay attention to. Um, but, but I think the bottom line is that um, we're we're fueling. Saudi Arabia, I don't, I, I think that they would still be involved to some extent, but not the same extent. Um, but I just, I, I think from a moral matter, we, we need to not be supporting them there. And I, I personally think if we pulled out along with France and the UK, that Saudi Arabia would also pull out, that they wouldn't be able to sustain a military campaign there. Um, if you know, we might pull out. Maybe, maybe France and the UK have their own. You know, they have their own deals they want to make with Saudi Arabia. Maybe they stay involved. And maybe Saudi Arabia to continue uh, this campaign, but I mean, it's just it's it's horrible. You have a, you know at least ten thousand civilian deaths from uh, direct kinetic. Uh, actions by Saudi Arabia and us. Beyond that, though, you have destruction of ports, you have destruction of land that creates these uh, famines, this malnutrition, and and that brings it up to, you know, over 100,000 people are, are starving and dying because of this conflict. So you'll see people who maybe support it giving you smaller numbers, but you have to really take into effect the, the totality of what's happening and that's a, and, and the effect on the region when you're, when you're shelling port cities uh, and removing their ability to bring in food for the population. I don't know. It's just, it's one of the, it's one of the craziest humanitarian crises in, in I think our lifetimes and it's going almost completely ignored. So uh, if I could <laughs> bring up one thing that we haven't talked about yet, I think that's, that's the thing that I would talk about because it's, it's near and dear to my heart. It's something that uh, I think there's a little bit of, um, I, I, I think for the first time in a long time, there is a little bit of, of hope on the horizon uh, that Biden, who... Uh, reportedly, even when Obama started this, Biden was against it. So um, I actually have a decent amount of hope there. And um, it's not like us leaving is going to make it any sort of utopia. It's not going to be. There's still going to be a lot of the, the problems that were there before. There's still going to be a lot of problems dying. But at least, you know, like in a, in a triage sort of way, at least maybe we can stop the bleeding. Yeah, when you, when you talk about trade-offs, it feels like, in your opinion, that that's 
very low lying fruit where we could throw our political will to get the, the greatest benefit. Yes. Exactly. Cool, man. Well, let's leave it on that and have you back in to talk about the military industrial complex and your time, <laughs> your time in the military with special forces and all that stuff. Cause we didn't, we didn't get to any of that and we're at three hours. So we, we got to have you, we got to okay. have you back soon. Yeah. Hey, thanks I for being you. in, man. That was a lot of fun. Absolutely.